Hey guys, welcome to War Council. My name is Caleb Dillon. I'm Justin Jones. And this is a podcast about 40K, things 40K related, and things interesting to 40K players everywhere. Justin, how are you this Sunday morning? Doing all right. How are you? Good. So this is kind of our new sort of official time. We've been um, trying to figure out a good time for both of us, and Sunday morning seems to be the best time to do this for both of us. Um, I'm not a churchgoer, so this seems to work very well for me. Uh, I know that this probably is interrupting your normal sleep schedule, but hopefully, you know, we'll get into the swing of this pretty soon. So there's a lot going on. Uh, we got a lot we want to talk about today. Um, so among the things going on, Space Marines just launched. There's new Tyranid rumors out there. Um, and the meat of the show today is going to be we're going to talk about that article I did for Spiky Bits a few weeks ago. And this was a, commis- a, a, a painting article about commission painting services and sort of breaking them down and comparing and contrasting different services, rating them. And we're going to have a couple guests on the show. We're going to have a couple guest speakers. We're going to have Goat Boy, uh, a.k.a. Thomas Reedy, uh, or Goat Boy on the forums. He is a commission painter for hire, and he's going to speak with us today and give us his two cents about my survey. He was on that survey, so we're going to see whether or not he thought I judged him correctly, judged him poorly, that sort of thing. And uh, Rob uh, Bayer of Spiky Bits, also of For the Win Games in Midlothian, Virginia, um, and notably a one of the co-hosts on um, Forge the Narrative, another podcast that we're fans of, is going to be on as well with us. He's going to speak with us about his two cents. Um, he is not a, uh, a commissioned painter, but he does all of his own painting, and he's a very prolific painter. He's a tournament goer. So we're going to have them join us in just a little bit. Uh, but to get this started, why don't we uh, jump into a little sit rep. So this is the segment of the show where we talk about what's on our workbench and what sort of games we've been playing recently. So, Justin, what have you been up to recently in the hobby? Well, that big Death Watch campaign we were doing inside the Tyranid Hive ship uh, that I mentioned or have been mentioning throughout the past couple of episodes has come to a conclusion. Unfortunately for my Space Wolf character, Brother Stellan did not survive. Oh no, he died? (laughs) Torn apart. He He literally got his face ripped off by a Tyranid warrior. Oh wow! So, in a in a in a grand, epic moment of heroic self sacrifice, uh, he detonated a demolition charge um, before he died, so that the Norn Queen would be annihilated. So he succeeded in his objective, but he died in the effort. Yes. Nice. I think that's uh, fairly appropriate. Uh... Did you feel did you feel like uh, the character's end was uh, was justified, or did you feel like it was more like you wanted to play a new character and this was a good way to get to that character? Um, I was I've been working on a new character concept anyway, using the custom chapter rules found in Rights of Battle, another okay. Death Watch supplement. Sure. I really wanted to retire Stellan, but eh, I suppose having his face ripped off and blowing himself up. <laughs> did any works. of the other characters in your group die as well? No, actually, they came really close, nice. but the dice gods just hated me that day, I guess. Well, it's, it's nice, to, it's refreshing to hear that you don't. You clearly did not take it personally on the DM. Like, clearly this was not a situation where you felt like he was out to get you, or or if he was, you took it with a grain of salt and didn't take it personally. I, I, I don't really go after DMs if, if a single party member gets killed. I go after DMs that total party kill yeah usually when it's a total party wipe it's more of a problem from from the dm than the players normally that means the dm has done something wrong he's either he's either taken it out personally like a vendetta or he's just overbalanced or unbalanced the game in some way right um so yeah they they got out so i i have i have my my main character 
uh, a, a from that, my custom Space Marine chapter, who also happens to be uh, a character in my tabletop army that okay. I play, my custom Dark Angels chapter, and as an alt, as an interesting alt character, I have an Iron Hand Space Marine. And nice. do you want to talk about psychotic uh, sons of bitches? <laughs> uh, Iron Hands are about you know that they're the, about the right way to go. So nice, yeah. So he'll be taking his. So he'll be joining the group now. So the campaign is going on. It's yes. Just, just uh, it's just a different version. Were the players right. in your group surprised when your character died, or did they kind of know the writing on the wall? Well, it was pretty obvious when he started taking critical damage. And for those of uh, for those of you out there who have not played any Fantasy Flight Warhammer 40k role playing games, uh. You have two sets of, uh, of damage you take. You have wounds, which really don't do anything when you lose them. But then you also start taking what's called critical damage. And when you start taking critical damage, uh, things really bad things happen. Like the first couple points of critical damage that Stellan took, uh, his kneecap got destroyed in his left leg. And he had to take an agility test or ball prone, which he actually passed that, which surprised me. That's actually one of the aspects of that system, um, and I actually don't know the formal name of that system used in Fantasy Flight, but it, it's an aspect of that system I really enjoy quite a bit, that they they take the time to actually show you how that damage adds up, as opposed to something like Pathfinder or whatnot, where you know you do you get hit, and all of a sudden it's just, eh, you get hit anywhere, or the DM will make up a location, as I tend to do. But in right. this system, you can actually lose limbs. In fact, you lose limbs a lot. Like they yes. they love cybernetics in this system, so they want to give you as many as possible. In fact, reading the critical damage tables in I think it's in chapter eight, the combat chapter in Death Watch are hilarious right. because they really went all out over the top with the things that can happen to you um, if you take enough damage. All of them usually involve a messy death. Yeah, absolutely. As I feel like they should in a game uh, where <laughs> death yeah. is so, you know, I don't know. It's just commonplace, I guess. So that that's that's there's that, and I've also been working, reimagining my um, Dark Angel successors. And this won't surprise you, Caleb, but I'm going for an East Indian theme for my Dark Angels successors. Really? Well, it doesn't surprise me you want to do East Indians, but it does surprise me that you're doing it with Dark Angels. Well, India actually has a warrior culture tradition that we really don't understand here in the West. And it's not just some random thing. It's It goes way back. I mean, you've got... Uh, they're called Sikhs, and it's a religious sect, and they're the guys they... At least in India, they carry daggers on their persons at all times, you know, and uh, you, you don't mess with those guys. In fact, it was the, the Sikhs that assassinated Indira Gandhi uh, in the 1980s in India, their, their prime minister at the time. So you got those guys are pretty hardcore if they, you know, off the prime minister. Yeah, you know? no doubt. So I thought it'd be kind of neat, instead of having the whole Greco-Roman... Uh, or Teutonic feel that the Adeptus, most Adeptus Astartes chapters have, it'd be kind of interesting to go with uh, a, a, an East Indian feel 
at least at least in their naming convention. I don't want to go. You're not going to see these guys walking around with, you know, uh, in East Indian garb. They're still Astartes, but it would just be kind of neat just to have a, a different naming scheme for them. So, well, I would I would argue that one of the things you can do with them is that because they wear the robes so often, that might be an opportunity to actually branch out with some color. Um, yeah, like I've been playing around with a, an alternative. Um, uh, I, I like to do alternative hell drakes whenever I can, and yeah. so I've been playing around with sort of um, what is it? There's this. Uh, there's a, a vampire counts uh, floating coven throne. That's what it's called, a coven throne. Yeah. So it's basically this this giant throne with these three witches sort of held aloft by these um, uh, ghostly spirits. And I really liked the size and the scale of it. I think it's it's just massive. And I thought it would actually make a really fun Helldrake. So I've been working on this thing for a while where I've taken uh, Flamers of Zinch and I've stuck them in where the ghosts are. And I've used that to sort of create a rolling flame effect. So it looks like this cloud of Flamers that's carrying it aloft. That's and cool. the three women up top are actually going to be... I'm going to swap them out a little bit. Because their, their dresses are actually very uh, sort of... Um, you call those big groups of harems they're very like harem dresses Um, they actually have like an indian feel to them so i feel like if i could just swap out the heads and give them like a little like cowl or something i thought i could i could make it look like sort of a floating harem of zinch and i thought that would have been really fun yeah that's cool sounding yeah so i think that'll be really it's it's been kind of a project a work in progress for a while like i bought a couple boxes of flamers and it wasn't enough flamers so i bought another box (laughs) so not a cheap conversion but certainly sort of a a table, just just a nice centerpiece for a table, right? And so da- the other thing, and I might actually have you do this down the future in the future for a commission, maybe is uh, since the there's the Raven Wing in Dark Angel successor chapters, and one of the models you can have is of course a Samael on a land speeder. Sure. What if I kind of did a play on that? Only you know it'd be more along the lines of something a little more Indian. Because there is some famous characters in a epic poem, which I will not embarrass myself by trying to pronounce for uh, any... Bhagavad Gita? No, not uh, that one. That's the only one I know. <laughs> it begins with an M, and in case my friend Navisha picks up this episode and listens to it, I don't want to embarrass myself in front of her again, so I won't try to pronounce it. But there's a character named Arjuna, and he's famous for riding a chariot. Nice. That would actually so, be really cool. Yes, so that's what I've been up to. So, yeah. how about you? Um, so it's been um, well, it's been kind of busy here. I, I last week I had this con I went to in town called Southern Front, which I keep trying to call Southern Hill for some reason. I don't know why, but so it's called Southern Front. It's put on by the Triangle Simulation Society. So it was my first con I'd ever attended as a vendor. So it was kind of a new experience, and I went in knowing that I was going to be very ill prepared. But I also went in knowing that if I never did it, I was never going to try it. So I was like, I'm going to go in there, and I'm just going to learn from the experience. And it was actually really great. Um, Cons for vendors, at least this con specifically, was a small event. It was an intimate event. Um, And I was really able to take some time just to talk to all the vendors and sort of get to know the locals in the area. Because these are people in the area, I would spend a great deal of time speaking with other vendors. I talked to a couple shop owners that I had never met before. And I got to talk to this one guy who was a a senior consultant for this company called Wargames Factory. And they make a lot of sort of generic gaming stuff like zombies and uh, uh, and zombie survivors and apocalypse survivors and historical figures. And notably, they do the shock. They do this these guys called um, 
shock troopers, which a lot of guys use for Imperial Guard. And they also create the Dreamforge Titans. They're the manufacturers of the Dreamforge Leviathan, which is the big 12-inch Titan that a lot of people would like to use for, like, uh, uh, Scout Titans for, for 40K. And they're about to release a 15-millimeter version, which is a great, like, sort of substitute for the Grey Knight, uh, Dread Knight. Um, so, th- so they make some really cool stuff, and I got to talk to this consultant for quite a bit. And he actually needs local painters in town, so he's actually working with me, and we're going to contract out some work. I'm going to do some work for him. So even though I didn't get any jobs from any local clients, I was able to meet a lot of local people, hand out a lot of business cards, and I was able to meet a lot of local vendors. And so there were business dealings. I just didn't physically take home any money from the con. Um, so it was it was kind of a learning curve, and that was that was an interesting experience. And I definitely want to do more cons in the future. Um, unlike the internet, where a lot of times you'll sell stuff like on eBay, that was my primary means of of selling stuff for a long time. It's a very negative environment. People are always criticizing you. They're always emailing you their hate mail, and they're just trolling you. And in this environment, it was kind of completely the opposite. Everyone was in the same boat. Like they're all there to make money, and they're all sort of you know trying to to get their product out and get their word out. And so we were kind of all in it together and it was very positive. And a lot of them came over and gave me advice and, um, it was, it was just great. It was a really nice situation. So that happens. Yeah, it was really cool. And it's nice when something good like that happens. Um, so that was sort of my social interactions for there. Uh, what else have I been up to? Uh, so I've got a couple random commissions that came in, and it always surprises me when I when I get a commission that sort of just pops out of the blue. Like once in a while, like someone will just email me, and it just works out. Like I'll exchange a few emails, and I'm always used to pulling teeth. Like I'm always used to clients contacting me, wanting to get a price. And really what they're doing is shopping around for a price. They're really just comparing my price to other clients, which is okay. Right, but in this case, um, a, a project came across my desk for a Storm Eagle, which I've always wanted to do, and so I underquote myself a little bit, like I charged the guy less than I normally would, just because I wanted to do the project. Like I've never got to assemble one of these, so it gives me a really nice experience. So um, I'm going to have one of those coming in, and he wants it painted up to a really nice level. He even wants the interior cockpits painted and stuff. So that's a challenge because you have to actually paint those almost before you assemble it. Yeah. Um, so this will be kind of a backwards project for me, so I'm looking forward to that. And uh, I just finished up an Eldar project for a client a couple weeks ago, so that got mailed out. And I subcontracted out an army through Karuthawk Painting, and that is on its way to me now, so that's in the mail. Um, and so, you know, just a bunch of different random stuff going on. And the workshop is the big thing that's been going on. The workshop is almost done. Uh, the, the walls are just finished being painted, and the floor has been stained, and we're going to put on some sealer tomorrow. And that will basically be it. They will now. Now we're thinking of calling it the showroom instead of the workshop, because nice. it's, it's just it's just too nice now. It's <laughs> such a nice area. It's the kind of place I'd like to actually bring a client and to walk them around. Um, and we picked up a, a case. Um, it was a local shop that was going out of business, and they were selling their big display case. So I picked up a display case for a real, real, real cheap, real good price. And so we're going to light that and put that in the shop and use that for displays. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been busy. I haven't unfortunately played any games, but I've been doing like a lot of social interaction and a lot of just getting to know the locals. And it's an area that I feel like I need to jump into as a, as a, as a, as a artisan for hire, as a commission painter. I I feel like I've got a decent presence online. I feel like I do a lot of social interaction through the internet, but I don't feel like I have a voice in my own hometown. And I feel like that's an area I need to work on. Like people need to know if there's a local painter, then they need someone they can just trust. They, they need someone they can see. They can physically see my 
play style. They can see me come down to the shop. And, and so to that end, I've been working with this new shop that just opened called Event Horizon Games. And most shop owners are a little, I don't want to say sketchy, but what I'll, what I'll say is that they, they, they're always sort of, when, they, when there's someone who comes into their shop who wants to do something for them, I think they always have to think about their bottom line yes. and how is it gonna, it's going to affect it. So this was a guy, the, the owner of this new store called Event Horizon. His name's Paul Coulter, and he's been really, really good to work with me so far. He's allowed me to display models in the shop. And so we talked about doing a terrain class. Um, so I'm going to do a terrain class in about a week or so. I'm going to come in and teach people how to build like a hill or something and then we're going to use that as a launching board for more classes and uh, we're, we've talked about doing some airbrush classes and some painting classes and so I think it'll be a good opportunity just to sort of get into the store and integrate myself into the community there and um, I've, I've really struggled with that in the past because I've, I've had multiple jobs on the back burner like I have my day job then I have a night job and I have a weekend job and and it's just busy so it's hard for me to get out so that's my goal moving forward is to to segue into a more social person on the in in the local community. You're a busy guy. I'm a busy guy. And, you know, what I want to do is I want to paint as my part-time job. But, yeah. you know, the thing that people don't realize with commission painting is it comes in waves. Like I'll get a job or I'll get some months I'll have like two or three jobs that'll come in and then the next month I may have one job. And if that job's not a big commission, it's not paying the bills. Um, right. So what I need is I need regular clients or I need clients that order regularly. Right. Um, and so, for example, this relationship with this guy at War Games would be really great because he orders models basically every month. So if I could work out you know, a deal with that vendor and a couple other vendors, um, like I was approached by a guy in Durham, North Carolina, which is a city next to me, about painting a couple models for a game they're developing from a 3D printer. Um, and people have talked about 3D printers and how they'll destroy the you know, the, the, the games that we know. And, and it's, it's certainly a topic worthy of discussion. I think we should probably devote a podcast to it. But what's right. interesting in this case is that he had some proxy models that he just developed, and he was looking for someone to paint them. So I offered to paint them for free uh, if he just wanted to, to contact me and set up a time to, 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 to get them to me. He right. offered to mail them to me. I said, that's great, do that. But then he decided he'd rather meet in person. So we're still trying to coordinate a time to get together and do that. So hopefully, if that comes to fruition... Then, as that company develops, I'll be able to paint their models for them. And so, I just need a couple of these going all the time in order to really be able to, to work as a commission painter. Right. Um, but building that client base is very challenging in the beginning because you're balancing painting with social interaction and social media. You know, people don't realize this, but posting videos, posting podcasts takes a lot of time. Right. You know, even for us, like, you know, just the podcasting alone takes some time, but then editing it and getting it out there and. You know, it's it's a lot of work. It's all great work, but it's just work. And you know, the podcasting doesn't make us money um, because we don't advertise through it. You know, so right. we, don't, we and, don't have you know whatever you call it sponsors. Well, and the 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 ironic part, or maybe not the ironic part, but the the other part is is you you can't just do one. You have to do both. Yeah, exactly. And you I have mean, to figure out how to balance how much social networking you're doing as opposed to how much work you're painting you're doing. Yeah, and, and that's, that's one thing I've talked with other commission painters about. And I, I'm very good about posting on all of my social platforms and that sort of thing. But it's a question of, when it comes down to it, what's more important? Is it more important to create great work or is it more important to, you know, you, you need to get the, your models to the community so they can see them, but you also need time to create them. And it's a, it's a delicate balance. Um, so it's, it's a challenging thing that I'm still struggling to figure out what the right balance for 
Of course, when you're a bigger shop or when you're a bigger studio, you have more people to allocate those tasks to. Uh, right. But as a new studio that's still trying to get its legs under itself, which is which is exactly where I think I should be right now, uh, you know, it's just a challenge, and it's certainly one that yeah. I'm, I'm rising to. Yep. So, um, okay, so that's... So it's been busy. So let's move on to Lookout, sirs. Uh, this is where we like to talk about new products that are out. And I think it's it's safe to say the new product that's out right now is the Space Marine Codex and uh, uh, the Damnos book, the new Apocalypse book, which somehow got missed, <laughs> I think, because the Space Marine Codex overshadowed it so much. Um, so we'll talk about those. I know you're excited about the Space Marine Codex. Um, have you had a chance to read it, review it, look it over? I've been looking through the rules, uh, and I really am liking some of the things I'm seeing uh, in the book, like the chapter tactics and some of the really good chapter tactics that are in there that we talked about in our last podcast. Um, Did you find they held up, like what we said was what was in there? Yes. Okay, nice. So those rumors that were very close to launch were actually not rumors, but actually they were just excerpts from the book. Right, it wasn't fan wishlisting. Plus, over on 40K Radio, they basically did an entire breakdown of, of the whole book. Nice. That's I listened cool. to a couple of those episodes of it. One of my friends told me, yeah, if you want the Codex, go over to 40K Radio, listen to the two episodes, because you know if you take notes fast enough, you can get the whole book, You know all the rules on the book. Yeah, apparently sure. they had a copy. So yes, they everything seemed to have stacked up to what the the later rumors were implying or suggesting and i like what i see um i'm not um i i i'm i'm a little concerned about my dark angels being left behind uh because there are some things that the dark angels are missing out on some very important things but well i think it, it's important to point out that you can ally with the space marines as a dark angels player yeah that's what i was coming to yeah. is that that's probably what i'll be doing is taking uh allies Nice. Especially, you know, for some of like the the chapter tactics abilities of the gra- gravity guns or the the, the anti aircraft vehicles. So yeah, I'm I'm liking what I'm seeing. Do you think when you ally with them that you'll? And this is one of those areas I haven't really considered yet. Are you going to paint them up like uh, an allied marine chapter, or are you going to paint them up like a dark angels chapter, and sort of integrate them into your chapter that way? Here's the way I'm going with this: is that I'm probably Actually, there's no probably they're about battle it. brothers, right? So it's it's basically right. like they're one big codex, right? What I, what I'm going to end up doing is saying, okay, I have my Dark Angels primary detachment or secondary, as it may be, will be like my Death Wing or Raven Wing. Yes, I know the White Scars can do Raven Wing type stuff a little better with their skilled rider special rule, but I think there's a trade off there. But anyway, if uh, what I'll probably end up doing is then taking something out of the Space Marine book and saying, okay, this represents one of the Dark Angels battle companies or reserve companies. So, for example, I, I might ally with Iron Hands type chapter tactics. So that would represent the Ninth Company, the Devastator Company, with all the chapter's armor. So that's the approach I'm taking. Okay, nice. Um, cause, and I, I have not had a chance to review the codex, to be honest. Like I, I bought it, um, but I've just been so busy with everything else that I, it just, 
I've leafed through it, but I haven't like done a full look at it and really really digest it. Um, so I unfortunately really don't have much to say in that regard, but I am curious to see when people start to do these allied lists, when they do like an Ultramarines Raven Guard or an Ultramarines White Scar or, or whatever they do, uh, I'm, I'm going to be curious to see how that is presented on the table. Like if they'll present it as one chapter or if they'll present it as two allied chapters, kind of in the same way that like, for example, you can take a Chaos Army and ally it with a uh, Black Legion Army. Like right. I'd be interested in seeing what that dynamic you know what that aesthetic is on the table um yes so okay cool um well off the codex but onto the models because that's what i'm interested in what do you think about the new models have you had a chance to sort of get up close on any of them or is it still just more like they haven't really integrated themselves into your local play store yet i haven't really seen too much of them yet then again i've just been able to look at the codex uh just recently so i haven't gotten to really evaluate the models um, on their own merits um, I'd like to I'd like to do that of course but yeah sure yeah. I, I really uh, I feel like people gave the centurions a really hard time yeah um, and uh, and I actually kind of like them um, I'm sort of eager to, to put one together and just sort of see how the kit goes together um, I did get a chance to put together a hunter stalker yesterday because uh, I'm, I'm doing this Help for Heroes project, which I'll put a link to in the show. Um, but the Help for Heroes project is the Salamander's Army they're putting together, and they're going to raffle it off. And they're going to give the donations to this charity. And so my contribution to it was an Aegis line and a Hunter Stalker tank. Um, so I got to put one of those together. And, and I have to say, it's a really pleasant kit to put together. It's basically just a rhino, and they just threw an extra sprue in there. And the extra sprue integrates just flawlessly. Um, it's just a really simple add-on and uh, what's even I think nicer about it is that unlike most GW kits where you have one or you have a modular kit but you can't do all the options in this right. case you really can like you can build the the the, the basic chassis and then you have the uh, the platform that holds the stalker cannons or you have a different platform entirely that holds the uh, hunter cannon uh, or I think I got those backwards but it doesn't matter the point is is that you can do both and you don't even have to magnetize it you can just literally let them sit on top of the model and they're weighted and heavy enough that they work really well for that. The only piece you're missing is there's one piece, there's a little antenna uh, that's supposed to go on both of them, but the kit comes with a radar dish that comes on the basic marine sprue, so I just took the radar dish and threw that on where the, the antenna was and it worked fine. Yeah. Um, so that was a really nice kit to put together, I really enjoyed it. I am kind of bummed that they didn't do that giant robot we were all hoping they would like a sort of a um, something to kind of compete with a Dread Knight or or maybe even like a Wraith Knight or something like that. This would have been a, a great opportunity for them to do like a Night Titan, I think. Right. You know, like or at least a plastic contemptor. Yeah. Well, and, and now that they've got the scale of the game up to a point where like they've got the Eldar, uh, what do they call him, the Dread Knight, or what's he uh, called, the Wraith something, Wraith Dread, I don't know, the big guy, the twelve inch guy or the eight inch guy. He's huge. He's just massive. So now that they've got the game up to that scale, they can really justify doing a plastic like Knight Titan, like a House Knight Titan or, or a Herald Knight Titan or whatever, right. and just using him as just a really big, beefy HQ choice. Yeah. Um, so I would have loved to have seen that, but that didn't happen. Um, Damnos just came out as well, and I, I felt like Damnos kind of got a little overshadowed. Um, I did get to do a re- review on Damnos um, for Bella Lost Souls, so I posted an article on there. 
Uh, and I, I keep waiting to post an article where I get destroyed, but it hasn't happened yet. I've only had a couple articles posted so far. So, so far, the, the comments have been kind. <laughs> um, one, but I, so I got to read through Damnos, and I really liked it, but I'm a big Apocalypse player, so it was fun for me. Uh, what I will say is it kind of reminded me of a lot of the other campaign supplements they've had, and that it's very specific. Like, this is a book that's Necrons versus Marines, and it's recreating a battle that happened in the fluff. And there's really nothing else to it. Like, there's nothing in here for Orc players. There's nothing in here for Chaos players. They do say that you can recreate the battles with your own stuff, and you can use some of these cards in your own battles, and, and etc. But, you know, there's just really no reason to buy it if you're not one of those kind of players, I feel like, or if you're not an enthusiast like me. Um, so right. they, they didn't really cross-promote it in that way. What I will say also, though, is it's really cheap. It's only $33. Um, so I don't want to get into too much of it, but I feel like for 33 bucks it was a pretty good value. They had some cool alternative builds for um, some some formations. Like they had an alternative build for the pylon. They had an all, and by build I mean like not build like you can't swap the like the cannon, but more right. like here's an alternate rule set if you want to use it. Um, so they had some nice formations in there. The terminus was pictured in there. And uh, I think the only place they really dropped the ball is they talk about these really cool Necron special characters, and they never gave them rules. Uh, they just sort of, like, they they talked about this Necron overlord, but then they just were like, it's an overlord with this weapon. And it was a standard weapon from the book. And they talked about this really neat Necron crypt lord. He was like an overlord, but he was a, a ghoul. What do they call those guys? A crypt fiend? The, the flayed one. He was a flayed, flayed one. Flayed one, yeah. So he was a flayed one, but he was a Necron lord. And I was like, that's awesome. I really wanted to see some rules for that. Um, and they didn't, unfortunately, do that. They just... They had a formation that, that, that had a Necron Overlord as part of the formation, and he gave the unit special abilities, which was okay, but it, it let me down a little bit. Yeah. But otherwise, it was it was a fun supplement, and I definitely think it was a lot of fun. So people should check it out, even if you decide not to buy it. Check it out in store and see what you think of it. Or check out my review on, on uh, Bella Lost Souls. And then, of course, Games Workshop dropped the entire Ultramarines chapter for sale. And then they did do that, which was cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I like when they do these sorts of things, these big group buys. But, And I haven't done the math to see if that's actually a discounted army deal. Um, sometimes their army boxes are discounted, but sometimes they're just convenient. Like when yes. they do like the three Heldrake formation, there's actually no, not a price difference there. It's just three Heldrakes. <laughs> Yeah, but it's just more convenient to click on that one thing. So and $12,000 later. Oh yeah, it's crazy. So I mean, it is cool looking. Like I did get to look over the pictures and what it was and I mean, it's, you know, it's almost like a thousand it's a thousand marines, right? It's it's yeah. it's 10 companies and it's a ton of vehicles. It's, you know, I don't know, probably 20 vehicles or more. Like I'd say it's probably closer to 30 vehicles, actually, because it's like eight or nine drop pods. It's like four land raiders, a dozen. It's just, yeah. it's insane. Yeah. So I, I don't know if it's a good value or not. I, I want to know who buys this. <laughs> like, if someone actually buys this, I'm really curious to see who that person is. They're uh, either going to be painting for 10 years straight, or they're going to come along and say, Hey, Caleb, why don't you paint this for me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that'd be an intimidating thing to do. Like, if someone yeah. approached, I like to think that I'll do any project, but no project too big, but. <sighs> A chapter, of, a chapter of Marines is quite a job. Yeah, like, I loosely estimate my services at basically three times retail value. So if I were to re- basically look at that chapter, I would have to loosely say that's about a twenty-four thousand dollars commission. 
And even yeah. if I chop off like 25% of that, which I would for volume, you're still talking like a $16,000 commission. That's, that's, or, or not even, not, not 16, 20, 20. I don't know. I, I can't even do the math on it. It's huge. 18,000. So that's a big, in fact, now I want to do that commission. So if anyone <laughs> wants to contact me and commission me for a whole year, <laughs> I will do your chapter. Um, okay. Nice. Yeah, so, all right, so in our next segment of the show, we're going to do our meat grinder segment, but we have a couple guest speakers for that. We have um, Thomas Reedy, a.k.a. Goat Boy, is going to join us, and we're going to get uh, uh, Rob Bear from Spiky Bits on the phone. So we're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, we will have uh, both of them on the phone with us, and we will talk about this this article that I wrote for Spiky Bits where we talked about commission painting, and we'll see, was I right, was I wrong, and what were their thoughts on it, and uh, more of that when we get back. All right, guys, welcome back. Uh, we have a couple guest speakers with us today. Um, joining us from afar, we have Thomas, a.k.a. Goat Boy on the forums. Uh, he's going to be speaking with us about our meat grinder section today on uh, commission painting. And we've also got uh, Rob Bear from Spiky Bits. Uh, he's also the owner of From the Win, From, For the Win Games in uh, Midlothian, Virginia. Hey, guys, how you doing this morning? Doing good. What's up, man? Not much. I know it's a little earlier than you guys are used to, so uh, hopefully you guys are getting a cup of coffee and you guys are waking up just a little bit. It just means we couldn't drink as much last night, right? <laughs> Did that stop you? No. No, okay. I'm a, I'm a little under weather, so my voice is awesome. So. Oh, okay. Nice. It'll get worse. It'll get worse. It'll be great. Okay. <laughs> this, this is the high point. This this is the yeah. best moment right now. Yeah, it's as good as it's going to be right now. Nice. Smooth. All right. Uh, <laughs> All right, guys. Well, we really appreciate you joining this morning, and you're our first guest speakers. You guys have the special privilege of being our first. So, do, we get, do, do I get a season. medal or a ribbon? Well, the last person that took my first did not get a, a medal or a ribbon. Oh. Uh, oh. I have a special oh. place in my heart. So. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> he saw what I did there. All right. It's going to be on a blog somewhere. <laughs> yeah, there'll be some hate. Um all right, so guys, um, this section of our show we call our meat grinder section. It's just where we like to take something, dice it up, sort of spill it around, and just see what comes out the other end. And in regards to uh, the meat grinder section today, we did an, I did an article about two or three weeks ago uh, called uh, uh, Cheap's Not Enough, and it was a study of around 40 or 50 or so miniature painting services. Um, and this largely came about because I wanted to see where my painting service for white metal games kind of stood in terms of the grand arena that is miniature painting. Um, it's not a regulated industry, so there's not a whole bunch of people out there that say this is how you have to do it. There's not even really a uniform tabletop standard. Even that is very loose company to company. Um, so I decided just to sort of take a whole bunch of services, everyone I could find, you know, doing a combination of just Google searches and Twitter searches and all sorts of stuff, just to see what was out there. And the results were, I think, you know, uh, probably very much in line with what I had what I thought, but there was all sorts of stuff in terms of quality out there and pricing out there. Um, and so we sort of rated it, and uh, I know you guys have had a chance to review the article, so we just want to sort of talk about that today, good, bad, or otherwise, whether or not you know we did a good job with it, whether we did a bad job with it, how it worked out, that sort of thing. Um, so uh, real quick, of the services we listed, this is by far not a comprehensive list. There are far more services out there. I've continued to add services to this sort of directory um, on my own in the meantime, and there's yeah, I think some some people post even posted on the article and they're like, hey, you didn't you, you didn't hear about me, add me, yeah. or so. 
And yeah. some of those guys, like these are individual artists that don't have websites. And so it's sort of like they're either local painters. And some of them are just painting services. And after they emailed me, I did add them to the direct. And that's going to be added to uh, my website. I'm going to add a directory section. Um, and, my, and I sort of toyed with whether or not it was a good idea for a long time. I kind of feel like as many entrepreneurs, if we sort of band together, what's good for one is good for all. Um, so that's kind of the opinion I, I took from this is that we don't have to necessarily, we are competing for business, but we all do things differently. We all paint differently. So it's not like we're going to always have, you know, um, contacts or clients. Like everyone has different client bases that work well for them. Um, like Goatboy paints completely differently than I do. He has a signature style and you can tell his work when you see it. Um, and I think other painters are the same way and people are drawn mm -hmm. to those styles. Um, uh, okay. So, um, so for this survey, I had to basically just sort of pick a way to rate this stuff. And it was, I think, a little presumptuous of me to look at other people's service and rate them. But for the purpose of the survey, I really felt like I had to have some sort of rating system. So I tried to be as fair as I could. Um, so I'm going to quickly outline the way I rated these services. And you guys can tell me if you think I was right, if you think I missed some areas, that sort of thing. Um, all right. So we rated painting services uh, in basically three different areas. We rated them on price, quality, what we called a tier. Um, a price was real simple, just metric for how much does it cost to paint something. And because different services price their services differently, some services have like high quality paint jobs, low quality paint jobs, speed painting services, dipping services, master quality services, that's thing. We decided to ask every service on the survey to basically paint a model, our squad of tactical marines, 10 marines, uh, from a basic tactical box with no conversions, no modifications, just out of the box, off the sprue, painted up in an Ultramarine's color scheme to what we call a tabletop standard. Now, where this got confusing was people were confused about what a tabletop standard was in some cases. Some services don't <laughs> offer it. Some services only paint the way they paint, and that's it. Some services only paint high quality. But most services had levels of painting, and so they had what they deemed a tabletop quality. Do we want to talk about what we all believe is a tabletop quality real quick? Like... Well, I think I think that can be subjective, pretty subjective too, you know. Yeah, sure. Um, so what I identified as a tabletop quality was a three-color down, minimal shading, and minimal shading for contrast, or minimal highlighting for contrast, and that was basically it. I didn't get into basing; it didn't require them to have. I didn't go into a whole bunch of detail about what it should entail, but basically, it should have some level of contrast and three colors down. Would you guys agree or disagree that that was about right for a tabletop standard? That's what I've always heard. You know what? What I've always assumed tabletop standard was, at least for tournament play, was the three colors and the, and the shading. Down, I just mean there should be three colors on the model. For example, yeah. Marines, right. you're talking about a couple different metallics and blues or a flesh tone, and you're and you're you're there. You've got enough colors, and this spills over from I think the old tournament days, doesn't it? Like mm -hmm. GW used to have a rule about that. Robin Thomas, you guys used to attend old tournament back in the day. So is this how that started? Uh, I think they know, had a checklist, I, didn't they, or something? Yeah, it was, it was a checklist for it on the three color. Um, like, it's a hard thing to say, like, uh, tabletop for me is, it all depends on what you're asking me to paint. Um, like, Ultramarines is, uh, you have, like, a three-shade blue, uh, a wash, your skin tone, which is probably three shades, and metal, which is usually two shades. Sure. Um, based on the metal set. But that's just the way I do it. But, I mean, I'm, I'm, I do things, you know, like I said, I have my own whatever, you know, way I, you ask me to do something, it's like, I'm going to do it this one way. I can do it more by adding more color set to it, but, right. you know, I base all my, I'll, I base mine on hourly rate. That's how I, I figure out my stuff. Okay. I don't know what you, yeah. So what do you charge for your hourly rate? I, I'm 25 an hour. Okay. 
That seems so, to be what I've seen. I've seen 20 to 25 an hour on many services. So that seems basically right in the ballpark for what people pay. And I, I've, I've asked, like, people ask me all the time. I'm like, you know, I get asked this how the service stuff and how they set up. And I go, you know, it's like it's 25 an hour is what I normally charge. You know, you're not going to be as fast as I am with brush painting. So, you know, like I said, I say I do, I do 10 works in under two hours, two, two and a half hours. So there's a little upcharge on that depending to cover some of the other stuff that takes longer when you so do stuff on Using this Ultramarines example, how do you feel like, how many hours do you feel like it would have taken you to do a squad of 10 tacks? Uh, two to three, usually, in full That's base. pretty quick. Now, is that uh, from the priming stage, or, or do you consider, like, you, for example, you prime, give, lay down a base color with an airbrush before nope. that, and then you start painting? It's, it's straight, uh, that model is a prime black, and I finish it up at the end. Okay. So that's, uh, that's just the way, um, and that's all the basing done on as well. But what, like, about, like, what about assembly? Do you add an assembly into that hourly rate, too, um, or a flat fee? Uh, I usually charge, like, a buck. Uh, like, it, it depends on what I'm assembling. Okay. Um, if I'm assembling Marines, uh, you're going to see probably, you know, usually it's a dollar Marine, $2 for Terminators, depending on, if you send me dark, like, dark vengeance stuff to put together, I usually don't charge the paint, I usually don't charge much to uh, assemble that, because mm-hmm. it's pretty easy. Um, really, the longest time it takes on is, is getting some of the mold lines off there. That's what takes the longest um, on that stuff. That's up a good point. Do you scrape every mold line? Because I'm a, I hate mold lines, but I, <laughs> I hate is I mean I hate scraping them. Like I'm I'm <laughs> I get the big ones, but like I've had a lot of haters online when I post something. They're like, you missed the mold lines. I'm like, yeah, I did. I didn't want to scrape those. That was like work. Yeah, I'll yeah. scrape mold lines for uh, if I build it. I'll scrape the mold lines, especially okay. when you actively see. And you just you know I have a. I have a, a dullish knife that's flat, and I just scrape it on towards the edge on it. I mean, especially with the shoulder pads, stuff that's ob- super obvious, uh, and everything else on there. Just because, I mean, there's nothing worse, worse than seeing a ridiculous mold line on a painted model when right. you see the really bad one. I have someone who's even, who's even more particular on it, and he yells at me sometimes because I'll miss small ones on me between legs, and he'll get on me. Oh, and right. I'm like, oh, damn it, I missed that. So I'll usually, if I see it, I'll fix it real quick and repaint uh, the part of it and get the the tone set on it, but sure. Um, Rob, now you Rob, you do not have a miniature painting service, but you paint a no. ton because you paint your own armies. Where do you come in on this? Like, do you have a, a standard? Do you call your tabletop, or do you sort of like where do you come no. on this? No. Oh, I, I mean, unfortunately, I, I mean, I, or fortunately, however you want to look at it, I still have some of my armies from when I didn't paint quite as well, I guess. Um, like my Iron, Iron Warriors army, which is pretty much all brushwork and stuff. That's probably about 10 years old. So, like, right now, I'm going to play Marines again, you know? So, like, I don't want to paint a whole new Marine army, so I'm just adding to my Iron Warriors, which means I'm going back and I'm using a brush. I'm not doing, like, the, the airbrush thing, sure. you know, that, that I've kind of gotten accustomed to. So, um, you know, if that's a lot more work, but it isn't as good of a quality. So, it's like, how would you, you know, how would you... I feel like, you know, I've told Kenny this. People have asked me, like, at the store, they're like, hey, man, would you paint this for me? I'm like... You probably can't afford me, dude. <laughs> like, like I'm probably just so as much as... You've been like, approached a couple times, and you've just declined. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be rude, but, like, I don't... You know, I don't have a whole lot of time, because running, between running the blog, the store, you know, the Facebook, all, all that stuff, it's just... I can barely fit in my stuff, so I don't want to get up anybody's expectations. But say I did have... You know, I didn't have one of those or two of those things, you know, then, then you know, maybe, maybe we could entertain some ideas. Um, 
you know, but I don't, I don't think I would value my paint any, any less than Thomas or Kenny, you know? Sure, absolutely. Um, now, when we refer to Kenny, people who don't know, this is Kenny Boucher from Next Level Painting, who just right, moved yeah. to Cary, I think. He just moved into my state. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's down, there, down there around your area. Um, yeah. <coughs> now, Justin, you are not a miniature uh, commission painter, but you have commissioned miniatures for me. In fact, that's how we first met, is you had me do yes. some miniatures. So where do you come in on the whole tabletop standard thing? Well, I, I guess for a, the way I, I look at it is that every, you know, the basic models, like let's let's use the tactical squad example because that's a good place to start. Uh, the individual battle brothers, you know, brother Maximus with his bolt gun probably doesn't need, you know, can probably get away with the three color. <clears throat> but I think the more important the character, e.g. Mm-hmm. a brother sergeant or a brother captain or a librarian or an apothecary, should probably have more colors on them. So they kind of stand out a little bit from the rest of the army. I mean, that's how I've always approached uh, the themes on my armies. Sure. Um, And I think in that squad, the one I was using as an example, the only real character you have is like a brother sergeant. And he's not exactly terribly much more detailed. He has, I think, a few more details you can pick out. But I don't think when I'm painting, it would add a great deal of time to my paint scheme there. Like I said, I normally any any character like if you get send me a squad, I usually do the character better yeah, uh, sure. as just an, as as an upgrade. I'm like I don't it doesn't bother it doesn't add anything more to what I'm doing. Now when you so say for me, better, do you mean like you add just do you spend more time flourishing the details or do you yeah. use better technique? Uh, uh, better b- both basically you basically add in both aspects on it. any kind of character. Like usually if you add um, you start adding like multiple squads, multiple stuff, then I'll go ahead and do the uh, HQs at a higher level without charging for it just because. It's better on there, and just like uh, the trick is, you know, I like to paint orcs and dirty mean stuff. So if you send me dirty mean stuff, I'll charge you the lower rate because I just like to paint it. You know, so any orcs. So I'm just I'm waiting for orcs next year because uh, uh, I machine through orcs like if there's no one's business. There's a, I have my tricks. I have my tricks for orcs. So sure, and that's one thing that people don't think about a lot of times is that painters have more experience based on what they've painted in the past. So if you've done a lot of ore and you're charging an hourly rate, in theory, that works to the client's benefit because you are so much more practiced with that particular line of models that you can bang through them faster. So as whereas someone might quote them, let's say, $5 in work or $10 in work or whatever from their painting service, if you're about doing it by the hour and you're super comfortable doing orcs and you just have it down to a machine-like process, then in theory, you're the painter to go with when it comes to that sort of thing. Um, so people should look at what your gallery or what your portfolio entails, what you're comfortable with and what you've done in the past and use that, I think, as a basis for like, hey, this is my, this is my orc guy. When I do orcs, I should contact, you know, Thomas, you know, with mm. a monkey painting and he bangs through it. Um, all right. So, um, that was how we rated sort of the pricing system and for the, the three, uh, the tabletop quality for that. Um, we also rated a quality standard. Now, this was by far the most subjective area and certainly, I think, opened to the most criticism. Um, we gave a, uh, we had like a five, I had like a five star quality thing we did. And we kind of used that as sort of our, our, our middle basis being three stars, of course. And that was where most painters seemed to fall. Um, one star was basically new painters, people who were fairly new to the hobby and trying to learn basic technique. Two stars were people that um, had done a few hundred miniatures. They were younger services. I, I wrote in my service as a two-star service. It's people that are still learning some techniques and they're still sort of developing their own style. 
Um, three stars is where most people came in. These are professional painters. They're pro painters. They do a good job. They have their comfort zones, but they also are trying new things. And overall, give you a very high quality standard. Um, four stars is where you're starting to, I, I would say, master techniques. You actually are using advanced techniques like feathering and advanced blending, and you're just you're, you have a lifelike style or look to your miniatures. Um, and this is where you start to see people like the really nice painters, uh, like the heavy metal teams, the guys who spend hours and hours on one figure. Yeah. Sounds expensive. It's, it is expensive, and it's unrealistic for a painting service. And then five stars is the Golden Deemer, Golden Deemer Gold winners, those guys who just paint miniatures that look like portraits. You know, they're, just, they're amazing, but they take 80 hours or whatever. Um, so most services fell in that two- to four-star range. In fact, most of them fell in the three-star range. Um, and I put myself down because I do feel like I'm a very new service. I feel like I'm still learning a lot of technique, and I feel like it's, it's a good growth area for me. I've only been painting professionally for a few years, so there's a lot of places where I need to work on my technique, and pricing comes into that, and that's why I can price lower because I realize people are getting a lower product when they go with me as opposed to going with someone who has a lot more experience than I do. Mm. Um, do you guys have any comments about the quality system? Do you think I was off the mark on any of those, or do you think I, that like how dare you even rate their quality? Who would you <laughs> judge? Like, I'm 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 okay with it. Like I said, I I would probably put a, put myself at three because uh, I'll tell you how many minis I've painted. Sure. So uh, so if you want to take my orc army, I'm at like my orc army is at five hundred. Sure. I've done uh, two others for cl- clients sure. that are around three hundred. Uh, Chaos is. <laughs> Demons. I would. Uh, I have a IG army that has every model, every unit that I had to paint up. That was nuts. Sure. So I would say I probably painted more. I'd probably say closer to three. And, and to be fair, I, I think that when I was rating these services, and, I was going through and rating forty or fifty services at one time. So I think that what I was doing is I would give a couple quick looks. I would poke through your gallery a little bit, and, and so in your case, I poked through your gallery, and I just had to sort of make a decision. Like this is what I think, um, and go from there. And I think that I got it wrong. In fact, in some places, people would email me and be like. I think you need to take a leather look, which is what I invited people to do. People would contact yeah. and be like, I think he's <clears throat> better. Um, and sometimes this was just an indicator that their gallery yeah. wasn't up to date. Or but you even talked about that in, their, in the article, right. about like yeah. one of the things you need yeah. to have. Right. I mean, because some people would be like, I do this, this, this. And they'd be like, I do dioramas, I do... I do basing, I do like I do uh, you know, battle trays or whatever. And I'm like, well, there's no examples of that on your site. If I'm a client, how do I know that? Mm-hmm. Um, and I only had one person contact me and actually ask, do you have any recommendations for my site? And it was the guy from Gollum Painting who paints, they paint amazing stuff. So I mm-hmm. felt very pleased to even you know, offer him advice, but I also felt like it was sort of like Superman asking me for advice on how to kill Zod. I was like, I don't, I don't know. You're, you're, you're a big <laughs> studio? Like, I, I don't know what the... Uh, well, I mean, I, there's, you know, it's, it's a problem I run into myself, you know, you know like running, you know, Spiky Bits and FTW games. Like, yeah, I can run a game store, got it. I can run an online store, got it. But then there's, hey, <laughs> you know, bookkeeping, marketing, SEO, you know, all that stuff. So it's like, there's always, I mean, there's so much that goes into a business these days with the advent of the internet that, you know, any little piece of information or any little piece of bit of help that you don't have to go out and spend time searching for is always a, a boon. Oh, it was a big help. I mean, it's a big help for anyone to look at stuff because it's a big starting point just to see who you can go to. Because I've had you know horror stories from other clients that had terrible service from people that they didn't know anything about, but that's just what they you know said on there, or basically like uh, they lied about their quality. So yeah. you know, I, it's, it's like that's that sucks. Um, the biggest thing for any you know thing is constant constant talking as best you can, always updating, always trying to sit there and, and give them a, you know, hey, this is where I'm at right now. If things are going slow, or yep. if they have a specific time frame, ask them when they need to buy. You know that's real important. 
Yeah, I think open communication with your client is one of those areas that it's 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 glossed over quite a bit because if clients, in my experience, every bad commission I've ever had, and by bad I mean a commission that didn't go well for one party, either me or the client, it was usually because it was bad communication. So when someone emails me about something, I'll send them five or six emails that are long, detailed emails because I want to know every single single thing about what they're envisioning their commission to be like what is their in their mind what is their end goal for their product because i don't have that picture painted in my mind um so even if they'll send me like pictures of other stuff they've seen done by other painters that sort of thing and you know i i, I need to figure out exactly it's important that they communicate in such a way that the entire process is transparent for me at least if, if i can if i can interject here yeah, a little please. bit uh coming since i obviously i'm not in this business but having been on the other end, uh, I can definitely appreciate the fact that you know every project I've had you do, you've always sent me these long emails with tons and tons of photos. You know, sure. like the what was the last thing you did for me? My my custom Kali army, my demon army. No, I think well, I think I did an Azrael. I think I did a custom. Um, D- oh yeah, you did Azrael. That was like a small one, but Kali army yeah. is actually a fairly big project. That was proxy army. Um, yeah, I really like those. Those are bread and butter projects for me because it allows me to flex my creative muscles. Um, and I had I had to paint her, the yeah. the actual model, and that that's where I was leading with this is you know because like with with the Azrael miniature you didn't paint you just you right. know, put them together. It was just but, an assembly. Right, but with like the the Kali miniature, and I'm talking about the Hindu goddess for anyone who doesn't know what the hell I'm talking about. Oh, that was um, for you. I saw that. Oh, okay. I know that um, The uh, you know every step of the way. You know, Caleb here was, you know, sending me, okay, this is the model, you know, this is the model I'm assembling, and then down to the, you know, this is the paint job I'm doing. And that was very helpful because otherwise, you know, as as has been indicated before, you don't know what the hell you're going to get, you know, mm-hmm. without pictures because, you know, it could be really awesome or it could be really awful. So as as somebody who partakes, I guess one might say, of these services, I really appreciate that. Thomas, what do you um? What is your process like? Do you send clients emails, updates all the time, or because I know on your blog I've seen where you'll send like sort of a mass, uh, kind of a mass update where you'll be like, and you'll give like a client's initials or something, or give just a first name so it's not identifying, <laughs> and you'll say something like these guys are primed or they're based or moving on details, and uh, do you feel? Um, like- do you find that system works well, or is that an old system that you've kind of dropped and it's just not really? It's just sort of I, like a grave on your your blog. Um, I I just uh, I usually start with um, I. There's two blogs I have. I have the one I really update a lot more of my personal, like GoBoy 40K, which it has. I do client stuff. I do paint lists for the week. This is what I'm going to try to paint for the week as another way to keep um, so clients can see where I'm at on it. Uh, I really need to update some of my website stuff. I've got like hundreds of uh, models I need to put on there. Um, and it's just the part of it comes down to that uh, my I've got I do so much random stuff all the time. So I like I'm, I keep the one blog as the major update one, which is the, the GoPoy 40K blogspot. Right. And right. Th- if you look at that one, that one is a very specific. Hey, I'm doing this this week. This is what I have on the block. This is primed right now. This is in pieces. This is right. not. Right. And uh, I really need to it really what the reason why I haven't updated you know, as much as that. I just have a, a lot to do. Um, do you find that clients respond well to that system, or do you find that they sort of get all lumped together and they find that unintimate or un? Uh, uh, they know another word for it. Uh, they usually seem to be okay with it. Like I said, uh, I do stuff um, usually. Uh, like I put two or three hours most nights in the painting, so usually something's done every night. Sure. Uh, so they'll see something every night or some every day or two, and I'll tell them, "Hey, this is done. Uh, pictures will be coming later when I have time to take pictures." 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's one of the bigger reasons why the, the drawing stuff will take a little bit longer because uh, yeah. I, I have a lot to paint. Um, yeah, and it's right. never, it is, it, you know, it's never, it's like, no, I'll, I'm, I'm going to do it. I just, I have a lot to paint. Uh, right, all the time. You're painting anywhere between 15 to 20 hours a week, depending on how many days a night you paint, yeah. uh, which is mm. a lot. That's far more than I paint, actually. Um, it's like a part time so job. It is a part time <laughs> job. I mean, that's, yeah. <laughs> so, like, let's give you an idea. Like, let's say, like, uh, I'm, I have a little bit of an OCD problem with uh, scheduling. Sure. So usually uh, Mondays is uh, Mondays are paint days. Uh, Tuesdays, depending on if I have the script for the comic, is a script uh, comic coloring anything else. I'll try to color something else at the same time as well. That way, my the three hour block I spent, so something will get done for commission because I do a lot of art stuff as you sure. as you know everything else. Right. Uh, Wednesday, Wednesday is normally a paint day slash uh, fix a comic if I have to or Thursday, um, and then Friday is uh, sometimes a paint day. Uh, Saturday will be a paint day, sometimes uh, art day, depending on what's going on, or a tournament. And then Sunday, I usually try to bust about five to eight hours painting uh, slash doing art, if I have, depending on what, what's, uh, what's built up. And so that's in kind addition of, to you having a regular job. Right, I have my normal job. I used to be able to paint at my normal job, not anymore. Um, I've got, I do too much stuff at my normal job now to do, uh, sure. do any painting. I'll draw there. But um, like in between times, I do I do tech support for uh, fiber optic stuff. So usually it's not very busy, but I always have stuff to do. Um, sure. But I usually will draw. So a lot of times I'll get my art stuff drawn there, and then I'll bring it home and scan it, everything else. And uh, you know, as I explained, like you know, I I draw as fast as I paint as well. So if you haven't seen me at a tournament doing bag art, you know, I'll sit there and and bust out bag art as well. I I'm I, as I say I I'm always working. There's pretty much a the, the, my vacation times are going to tournaments and not really uh, painting or doing anything, just chatting and getting excited about uh, models again. And that's <laughs> that's what I tell painters too. They ask me, "It's like, well, can you paint?" I gotta say, "Can you sit there and know that you're painting five to eight hours a day, and that's okay for you? That doesn't bother you?" And I'm like, "What do you mean?" It's like, "Cause that's what you paint." I mean, you can't sit there and say, "Oh, I'm gonna go paint a few things." I've told too many friends about like, "There's no way you're a commission painter. You'd hate doing this." Right. And they get, they get mad and offended, and then later on, like, yeah, you're right. I'm like, yeah, you killed you. You can't do this. You don't have the scheduling mindset to do it. Right. You know, this, like, painting for me is my hobby. Is my Like, I like to do it, so it doesn't bother me. But right. if it, uh, you talk to uh, Brandon from GMM, and he's like, I'll sit and paint 8 to 10 hours a day, and I don't care. I'm like, exactly. That's why I'll tell everyone. It's like, no, he's, he's a... You just got to get in the zone. You got to have the yeah. will for it. You got to have, you got to have the complete setup. You can't have any detractions, you know? Yeah. Like, I watch just, a lot of TV. You gotta want it. Yeah, I agree. Um, and it's it's a challenge because most miniature painters do paint in their free time. It's not it's not a full time job for them. So finding that sort of way to set up your studio space and, and finding time away from your loved ones where you can just be like, I need to dedicate my time to this. Um, it's a challenge. It's been a challenge in my marriage because, mm-hmm. like, I have a studio space, but it's you know, if I'm at home, I'm always feel obligated to find ways to measure my time between my job and my hobby time and my wife, and it, it is. She has to be very understanding about this is what I have to do this work. Um, Thomas, real quick, before I forget, when you schedule your painting and you do like an hourly thing, like where you charge $25 an hour, as a client, and this is a question I've had many times, as a client, how do I know you're being, just to be fair, how do I know you're being honest? Like if you say you charge 25 an hour and it took you two hours, do I just believe you? Or like, is it just one, is it like a trust thing? Or for example, if you come in and you say, oh, it took me longer than I expected, four hours, you know. I, I charge I charge a flat fee. Um, I say the miniature are going to take this long. That's what my average is in my brain for 25 and a half, so I charge my hourly rate. Okay. If it takes longer and I charge you, you know, $10 a mini, 
then it's ten dollars a minute. So basically, you use twenty five dollars an hour as sort of your cost matrix, but then you don't really you still give like an estimate, and that you still hold to that estimate. Is that yeah, what you're I, exactly. If, if if for whatever reason I want to paint more on it or want to do more on it, then that's that's my prerogative on it. I just I like as you say, certain certain armies don't take that long to paint. Right. Certain armies are much easier to do. Like a you know Necron army is not very hard. Right. You know, so you charge, you know, so for every time you get a nice easy army, you might have a really pain in the butt army, but you have to charge a flat, I mean, really, we've come to the conclusion for most miniature painters that a flat hourly, flat uh, mini, per mini paint is going to be the correct cost set for people, so you have to, you know, it keep that. It seems to be a standard, yeah. Right, so you got to keep that in mind, so that's what I do. I just tell people, it's like, look, you got to try to make sure you try to make $25 an hour if you can, and that keeps you in your, yeah. you know, that keeps it okay <laughs> enough to where it's worth your time. You know, um, so everyone and everyone else does, you know, does, you know, does things differently. And from, from that, from that point, but like when I say I do 25 hours, like that's the, you know, obviously you're going to have you paint orcs, any orc character, I'm probably going to take longer to paint that guy. Cause I just like to paint it just like a demon. I like to paint demon stuff. I like to do this stuff. You know, I just finished a demon commission and the guy's like, you do crazy stuff on it. Like, yeah, it's like, and you change the bases. I'm like, well, cause you need to have cavalry bases. I just had not have any. I didn't yeah. charge you extra for it. It's just cause it's nice to put them on there for you. I don't charge extra for it. Cause like, it's the way I would want the model to army to be. And I would think, you know, you'd appreciate, you know, that they would, they would want that army to be that way because it makes it, you know, no one's going to have any questions for it. Right. Uh, and some miniature painters do get into very specifics on their commissions. They'll get into specifics of, like, basing. They actually charge for basing. They charge for different types of basing. And this is not just resin basing. This is, like, how different types of ballast, different types of flocking. They get into some very specifics. It feels a little like nickel and diming, and then you have to kind of figure out, is that appropriate for that service? Um, and some miniature painters go in a very, like, they kind of go like you, where they'll quote a per-figure price because people kind of, well, you don't quote a per figure, but you kind of do. I mean, if you're creating an estimate. But I think people have come to expect that. They've come to expect, like, a finality where they can go, like, this is what I'm going to pay for this army. I'm going to pay $500 to have this guy paint it. And they know that. Um, and the reality is, if you, when you think about an art like that, if you're paying $500, you're really only talking at $25 an hour. I mean, that's 20 hours. It's not a great deal of time to crank out a ton of models. So those painters have to be very, very quick. In my experience, normally, I'm kind of like Thomas, where I, I spend a little bit longer you know, per figure than I probably would like um, because mm-hmm. I want to have that level of detail because I want clients to come back. You know, if, I, if I paint a crappy figure, but it's within that time frame that I quoted, I'm not going to get extra clients based on that. So I'm always thinking about the next client. I'm always thinking about how is this commission, when I publish it to my upteen social media sites, and I put pictures on the internet, how are clients going to perceive that? So I might flourish a little extra detail because I want that next client. I want that next commission. Um, but, but you, like I said, it's all about enjoying it. Like, if you actually enjoy sure. the aspects of it, then it doesn't bother me. Like, I, I don't mind painting. I, I, if you see my painting group, I have a little corner in my living room to where I can hang out, talk to my wife, watch TV, and I paint. And I paint on this little tiny little table. It's like, how are you doing? I don't know. I just know where my cup paints are. As long as I know where everything is, I can usually figure it out. Sure. Um, yeah, so that, so that's, the, and that's the kind of, you know, that's the kind of thing I, you know, I, I sit there and, you know, everything else. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. If you can't, obviously you have a problem, you know, everything else, I'm pretty easy to get a hold of since, you know, with uh, posting on the, uh, on the internets and everything else. So, sure. and if you don't like it, you know, I'm more than happy to talk to you out and see if there's something I can do and try to change the bond because that's kind of, 
you know, what you have to do on this stuff. And you'll have commissions that stuff don't go go right. It always happens. It does. And it's an unfortunate reality that unfortunately some people just, sometimes the commission goes south. Like they don't like the way you're doing something. Or oftentimes they had a different idea in their mind and you weren't able to realize that idea, at least in my experience. Um, and sometimes people have unrealistic expectations of budget. Like I had a guy contact me the other day, wanted to do... Uh, a little over 600 Reaper miniatures, and I quoted him a price, and it was it was something it was it was a high price, but it was for you know 600 figures over several months, and it was going to be a long-term commission, and it was one of those things where I was like, you know, this is a really big deal. I want to give you a, a favor, so I'm going to knock 25% off the cost just right off the top of my head. But then he kept negotiating, and he kept trying to get it down to like he had a very <laughs> specific number in mind. He was like $2,800, which was less than I was charging him even after the 25%. And it was one of those things that he had a budget in mind what he could spend, and if I didn't match that budget it wasn't going to happen eventually i was like well i would like the job i think i can make it work so i'll take that budget and i, I took his commission but then he ended up going with someone local so i didn't even get a job <laughs> like it what? didn't even work out that way like eventually someone basically price matched me or price gouged me or something or they came in with a lower price i don't really know but the point is is that he was sort of going he had a price in mind that he was willing to pay and a lot of times the problem i have with certain clients is that they're cheap and wrong word but let's say fiscally you know aware, I guess. You know, they, they just don't have budget that you want. Because when you think about 25 bucks an hour for painting or 20 bucks an hour for painting, nothing. Like a mechanic costs me 60, 70 bucks an hour. An electrician costs me 8 bucks an hour. You know, it's like, it's not a lot to ask someone to paint, you know, in, in my opinion. And I think that people, unfortunately, either have unrealistic expectations for what it costs, or they don't value your time as a painter, or no. on top of that, the economy is kind of tanking and miniatures get, keep getting more expensive from companies like GW. And so the combination of a bad economy, expensive miniatures, and it being a hobby is sort of the death knell of like well, of what is miniature painting. Well, let's, I'll give you an example. Like you know, like say I do, I do. You know, I, I draw. So uh, it's not anything else like that. You know, like if I like what I'm looking at and like everything else, obviously I'm more inclined to want to draw. If they're like, well, you like to draw for fun. You just like to draw. I'm like, no. You know, <laughs> everything you take away time wise takes away from something else. Right, so that's I have exactly to. The, the case. Yeah, you know, and this is, the, and this is not nothing. I'm just, you know, like I said, we, I do some stuff for Caleb with some, uh, you know, the design stuff, and I like to do it. It's actually, I, I find it fun. I don't have always the time to do it, but I like to do it. That's why, you know, we have our own thing, and I like that idea. But uh, some people, it's like, I don't want to draw your comic. I don't want to draw this. Uh, I, I don't want to do this. I, uh, I, I don't care that this is my, I guess you think my hobby, but no. <laughs> you, can't, yeah. you, can't, you can't get on there. So it's, 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 a, it's a sketchy thing, but... That's a lot of minis they asked you to paint. I think it's a, a lot a, of... It was, it was a huge commission, and I was really excited about it, and I don't want to dwell on it for long, but he, it, was, it, was, it was several hundred, it was, it was like 600 minis or so, and they're set up to various levels of service. We have like four tiers of painting at, at my service. And so it was across the board. There were a couple hundred in the first tier, a couple hundred in the second tier. And, and when all was said and done and everything came out of the wash, I quoted him $5,000. And mm-hmm. I was like, I'm going to knock 25% off that. I'll knock it down to 37 whatever, 50 or something like that. And then he kept negotiating me down until it got to the point that he was going to give me $2,500 and $300 in, in miniatures, like product, like he had, like, yeah. like for bones. And I was just going to be like, all right, well, I can turn those around, sell those, so I maybe make out 28 on this job. And I was like, it's low, but my commission right, right now and I was like, having a nice long-term job for four months or so really was appealing to me at that moment in time. I was like, it'll get me through the holidays. I'll do a couple hundred dollars worth. You know, I'll do a couple hundred minis every month. Like, it'll be a really steady job for me. I was like, this is great. And when mm-hmm. I did get it, I was kind of like, that sucks. Because I really, I kind of felt like I went, 
I, I went to the went, I met the client on his terms in that case, and I still didn't get it. Um, and I don't know if it was the right choice. I don't know if it was the wrong choice. Afterward, I was kind of like, did I take it wrong way? Did I did I not? You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. but on the other side of the point, I felt really pleased. I was like, well, he contacted me. I offered him my quote, and it was nice to even be approached about a job big. Like four years ago, I was doing one two figures at a time. You know, now this guy's contacted me about 600 minis. I was like, that's a step in the right direction, I think. Um, and it's going to be funny when somebody comes along with that new GW deal. Of the chapter. Deal. I don't, yes. don't want to talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> 12,000. Yeah. I just, I, I, that just blows my mind. Yeah. You know? I like to think there's no job too big, but that's a big job. <laughs> well, it used to be, it used to be they would offer a thousand dollar deal. And I guess that, that's just too, you know, that's that just was too like fast. That's company, I think, right? Like one company. Yeah. Yeah. It was now it's like, company ah. that did that, right? Yeah. Was that I think the death so. Company? Yeah. yeah or so. the death wing, excuse me. And then they're like, um, got this. Let's just drop the mic. Boom. Oh well, let's say like I've got a I got a client in Spain, and I've done I did five hundred Necromunda models. Yeah, that's a big. Five, five hundred. Like I'll, I'll pull up his. Uh, I have I have crazy Excel sheets. We'll give you an idea of what I've done. Right, that's how I work uh, it. Yeah, I have these crazy Excel sheets with everything set up, so you can like you can figure out the price. Um, right. Let's see, where is this one? Where is... It's funny how many people use Excel sheets, like how many miniature painters do. I do, because it makes quoting faster for me. I still feel like I spend way too much time. I mean, time you, you got to. It's just like this. Yeah. I haven't found one miniature service yet that so has like, the best way to quote, but I do feel like spreadsheets are in the right direction. Because they, yeah. they give you a very th- a very transparent breakdown of where the cost is. That's the way I look at it. Like, uh, his first order was uh, for um, IG. It was 384 models. Uh, then for this Necromunda was 245 models. Sure. Um, Necromunda was fun to paint. I actually liked painting it. It was different. A lot uh, of Necromunda models. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, let's not talk about that. That uh, means every Necromunda model left in its... Uh, almost. And then I did uh, a Mordheim, and Mordheim hit about almost 500. That's crazy. <laughs> and then, That's fantastic. And then, and then his uh, his space uh, dark angels I did around two hundred something. Um, now most people struggle to paint an army in a year, and you're talking about banging out. It sounds like I mean how how long did how long did was that over the course of a year those those projects you just talked about? Um, the IG was like I think six months. Yeah. Uh, the Mordheim, the, all that stuff. You know, he's been with me since the beginning. I gave he get he gets a discount like it, uh, and that's the one thing uh, I tell people like as soon as I get to a point on uh, ordering. Um, yeah. I get uh, you get a discount. You're like, no, you're ordering too many models. I have two or three guys that are at that point with me, so uh, it's like you get you get a ten percent or fifteen percent off all stuff all the time. Most of the time, I don't charge for building for stuff. I don't charge for magnetization any of their stuff. As far as they're concerned, their models are my models, and they're just you know. So I sure. consider them like mine. So then I'll be like, okay, they're going to get, um, uh, you know, I will be painting it up to whatever my standard set that I would like to have on mine. So everything will be magnetized. Um, that's you know that's that's the big thing on it. And I, I look at stuff like you know I, if I'm painting your model, I consider it one of my models. It's just not in my house anymore. So so I want to want to do everything else from there. So that's why I look at it. It's that's interesting you say that because for example, I do charge for assembly currently, but I, I am starting to see services. I kind of feel like a race to the bottom because I do feel I like I'm seeing services now that are offering free assembly with painting, which I think is a good idea. But assembly takes longer than people think does. Like if I yeah, it's it's almost like it's almost like another paint job on it, it itself, especially if you're cases, trimming all the mold lines. Right. In some cases, the assembly is actually longer for me than the painting. It um, is for me as well. So it's one of those things. Like, and I try to sort of 
I, I really get people to understand that. I've assembled hundreds of rhinos, and it still takes me a good 30, 40 minutes to assemble rhino. I mean, it's a, and that's not even clipping the whole sprues. That's just clipping what I need for those bits and cleaning those particular bits. A landerator takes you know, closer to like, you know, somewhere between you know, 90 minutes to an hour. And I've been doing this a long time. I have a lot of experience at this. And people don't understand that if I'm giving free assembly, I'm giving you hours and hours and hours for free. Um, and it's one of those services that it's, it's just, I see some services doing that, but I'm very conflicted about whether or not I should do it. I tend to do it when people do a big order, like, like kind of how Thomas is saying, if you get to a certain point, I'm going to offer you perks. Like that guy, I gave him 25% off everything, which was like $1,200 in value, I felt like. And I felt like that was a very good start, but one of those things that it was literally money I was never going to get. So I was sacrificing that money to get the job, and I had to weigh the pros and cons of that. Um, I do charge for magnetization because I don't want someone to contact me with one of these bull GW kits and be like, I want every option magnetized for everything. I tell them like, no. Yeah, because it'll, it'll just take, that will take days. I don't want to, like, I don't even want to begin to consider how that works. The kits aren't designed for that. Like, we've, mm-hmm. we've taken something that wasn't originally set up to do that and do it, and it's just unrealistic, I, I think. Um, in many cases, I feel like it's cheaper just to buy another kit, just buy two Razorbacks or whatever. That's, I, you that's, know. I've said that to them, like, look, I play tournaments. I'm gonna tell you what's good. <laughs> right. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and that's an unexpected perk people don't think about because I'm not a tournament player. So when someone says, "Is this competitive?" I can be like, "I think so," but I've actually considered hiring consultant like armies. So like, you may get a call for me at some point, like Robert or Thomas. Like, hey, I've got a, a client on the line who wants to do a tournament army. I need you to build me a list. You know. I'm more and, happy. Yeah, I'm more than happy with that. I do. That's that's my that's my thing. I do. I talk with like oh, ask me all the time. Like I don't care. I'll tell you exactly what you need to have on it. Right. Make it easy. Sure. Uh, like, sometimes people just don't want to know. They're just like, "Hey, what do you think about this?" And you tell them, and "You're like, I'm just going to do it that way anyway." So okay. <laughs> and, and and certain I've heard this from many people. Just because you have the right army, like um, Thomas, you had a really good example. Of this you had an army a few months ago. It was like a demon prince army. It was like. I don't know, three or four demon princes, I think. It was quite, yeah. a, quite a bit. And it was one of those armies that I feel like in the right hands, that was a devastating army. But I feel like in the wrong hands, yep. it would just not work at all. Like if someone doesn't know how to make that army work, they have like 10 models on the table or something. <laughs> and they're just going to get reamed. Um, oh, yes. So there's, you know, yeah. you, there is operator error you know, in some of those cases. Like just because you can, I can build someone a good list, it doesn't mean they can play it effectively. Um, all right, so moving on just a little bit. Um, so the final area that we rated on the service was the tier. And the tier was, was, was uh, sort of like a measuring of... It was kind of a measuring of how I felt like professional a painting service was. It was basically you started at a tier 5 and you worked your way up to a tier 1. And you got to a tier 1 by performing various functions. And some of those functions were things like... Uh, it had been in business for more than a year, so you're in a fledgling service. Or if you gave back to the community in some, like, for example, you did tutorials, you gave charity models away, or you, you know, gave advice on the forums or you, whatever, that sort of thing. So you were some, in some form of way, you were a mentor or a paragon is what I called it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had a social media presence in some form. It didn't require you have a lot of it. You had to be on two platforms and you had to be updating monthly. So it could be Facebook, Twitter, it could be a blog, it could be anything. Um... And the other thing was is that in the, uh, the final thing was that you had to have more than one artist in house. Like you had to have either a second artist or a sort of thing to qualify for 
in my opinion, the highest level studio. Now, some of this is subjective. People will disagree with me on that, and I want to hear that. Um, so those were my criteria for, for how studios got up there. For example, using this criteria, because I'm very active on multiple social platforms, I've been around for a little while, I do charities, and I do tutorials, and I blog, and that sort of thing. Based on that criteria, I'm a tier two. Whereas other studios who paint way better than me, but just aren't active, aren't updating this sort of thing, are much, much lower on this scale. Um, where do you guys come in on that? Do you think that was a good metric to measure, or do you think that was sort of like, look, it's all about the models. Either they're painted well or they're not. Who cares if they're on Facebook? That's, I, I, go ahead. Uh, I think I, ha- I, have two, I have two thoughts on that. Um, you're going to get, sure, you're going to get people that, that have to have more people in-house just to keep up with the demand, and that's fine. But then you're going to run into problems of are they handling the whole project? Because let's be, let's face it, there's a studio out there that, that spams all these all these social network all, all these social media networks, and they're on everything and they're everywhere. But then you know when you get your stuff back from them, it a lot of times it doesn't even match up. And I've heard that from so many people, countless people, customers in my store, customers online, customers whatever. So there's there's that issue. But then there's people like you know again Kenny, who is a one person studio plus an assembler, I guess, and he he will not bring on extra people because he does not want to diminish the quality of his work. Like he, if you know, if he's selling his stuff, it has to be, you know, it has to be what you're paying for, and it has to be the exact thing. And and you know, sometimes he does, you know, he would he would need a little extra help because he had a lot of stuff going on. But he would always do the main work. Like anybody can lay down a base coat and a wash. You know, that's easy. But as far as the blends go and the stuff that that, right. that you're known for, you have to make sure that you're giving that to people. And Kenny has a very signature, and I would say Thomas too. You guys have both very yes. signature style looks. Like when I see Kenny's yep. models, I know that's Kenny's model. And when I exactly. see, when I see Thomas's model, I'm like, that's clearly Thomas's model. So the question is, when you bring in a second painter, you are getting inconsistencies in you know the quality, the color, the scheme. That every are you heavy handed with an airbrush, you know and it's difficult. Mm-hmm. So when you incorporate multiple artists, that is a challenge, I think, for studios. Some ways some studios overcome that, I think, is they have, like, their assemblers and they have their painters. But on bigger studios where there's multiple painters, it doesn't always work. Some studios, like, there's one out there that I'm thinking of, and it's not the one you know, Rob's alluding to, but this studio in particular, basically, there's five or six artists in-house, and you pick your artist the same way you might go, like, pick a latte at a coffee shop. You're like, I want to use... Joe Blow for this project because you look at his gallery, you look at his work, and then you approach him about the project, and basically the studio becomes the middleman, connecting you to your artist. Um, do you feel like that's a good system, or do you feel like no, it's still not working? Um, mm. I I had a, a other painters uh, as well for a little bit, and then it came down to uh, I just could do the work faster than they could, sure, um, and get stuff done, and I kind of prefer one. Like I'm not like let's say take mine. You gave me a four out of five, so you'd say I'm socially, you know, I post on bulls, I post on my stuff, I post on three things. I'm just not on the Facebook or anything else. At some point, I will be, but usually it's the work stuff. Um, so I would say I would probably go more on that one. I am a single person studio. Uh, can't help that, you know. That, that's the way I like to work. Um, let's see what else is there. Um, Longevity. Well, we, I've been. We know you've been around a while, and I, I think again, mm-hmm. I probably rated you lower than I should have on that service, so I, I apologize. But I probably, no, no, I'm just. I, I no, I, I know you're not offended, but I, I probably did rate you low because there are areas, there are holes in my logic. Like I didn't really think about the fact that you post on Bella Lost Souls once or twice a week. That is definitely giving back to the community. So based mm-hmm. on that alone, plus the fact that you've been around for a long, I think that immediately bumps you up to like you know tier three. 
But I just yeah. didn't, I didn't consider that at the time. I was like, well, I, 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 got, I wasn't thinking of it that way. But you do give back to the community on a very regular basis. I do, ch- I do charity stuff. T- I do the charity army stuff too. So. Yeah, absolutely. But no, but I knew that too. But the big thing is, like, you know, I, I, I love the fact that you put this all on there. You know, at the very least, that's am a great article. For, yeah, am I looking for new clients? I can always do more clients, but not really. You know, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty locked in, and I, and also I'm one of the few guys that will take one miniature or two miniatures or three miniatures. It doesn't bother me. Like, you can give me one guy. I'll do one guy. It's, it's an easy thing to do. You know, I like, like I've got to paint uh, this week two Thunderfire cannons. He's like, you'll do minimum. Like, there's no minimum order for me. I, just, I like to paint. So if I like to paint, I'm going to paint it. You know, <laughs> at a real quick, basic level. You know, I'm like, oh yeah, I'll paint it. It sounds fun. Sure, some um, services do have minimums. Like, I think Kenny mm-hmm. has a minimum of a thousand dollars or something like that. Yeah, yeah, he does. But, but, like. Other sources like Third Eye Nuke does um, a minimum of quads. That's their minimum. For well, I think I think I, I'm not. I'm, I'm yes, it is part in part to be elitist. I'm sure, but realistically speaking, coming from the fact that I can emulate his style to a certain degree, as well as I know how he paints, like everything as it, it goes into the assembly. You know, you have to assemble the stuff a certain way. You have to set it up a certain way. And honestly, you don't want to keep be doing all these color changes with the airbrush. You want to have enough stuff to make it worthwhile to, you know, the actual process to, to work itself out correctly. Right. So I think that that is actually a lot to do with why why there's a minimum on Kenny's stuff. And oh. I, I'm sure you'll find that a lot of the airbrush guys are the same way. I think well, there's... Go ahead, Brock. Go ahead. Oh, oh, there's a minimum on Kenny's stuff because that's, I mean, that's how he, that's how he works. There's, it, there's no point in getting, he's, one mini for him like that is not yeah. worth not worth his time. You don't airbrush one mini. <laughs> no. I mean, if you do it for 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 an uh, award stuff, yeah, sure. you can. But I mean, like I said, there's no like for Kenny. He's like, no, man, this, that's the way he works, and his stuff his stuff rocks. I, you know, I like his stuff a lot. Um, I don't paint that way, and I don't think I'll ever paint that way. But it's a, it's one of those things that you know everybody else on him, and he has to have that minimum order to make it worthwhile for his time. I, I think that's part of where the artistry comes into this because it's we're not mm. we're not like mechanics where there's a certain way an engine goes together. This is by and large an aesthetic decision you make. Like when you think about things in terms of color choice or which technique to use, a lot of this is just you sort of feel it out, and you have to kind of go with what you feel like aesthetically works well in terms of color balance and that sort of thing and it's not something you can necessarily write down that's something i've struggled with on my website is that i've tried to figure out ways to communicate with the client about how we come to the decisions we come to but there's there's some part of that that's a big mystery because it's art and you can't put everything down into words i mean there's been plenty of books about color theory out there and i can cut and paste those all day long but you either look at my work you either like my style or you don't and my style will improve over time but that's it's your style it is it's the way it is it's it's Um, unquantifiable yeah that's a really good way to put it um okay well do you guys have any so final thoughts on this was this a good thing was this a bad thing do you think people will benefit from this is this something that we should embrace as a community is what's good for the goose good for the gander like what what yay or nay what was your guys final thoughts on the survey uh, it's good i think uh, oh, yeah. it's more i think it's definitely a much better um uh example for uh for them to just show it's just a good starting point for all this stuff and i think it's definitely a valid um, thing for everything else. I liked it. Like I said, I had a few things, but you, you're so easy. You're easy to talk to, so it's not an issue. Like now, give us this example. It's like, no, I'm supposed to be better than this. Be nice to me, you know, <laughs> which is not, which is not the case at all. Uh, it's just like no. 
you know, and you had to sit there and quantitate this stuff based on what you guys are doing. And then you're like, I have to put myself in here as well. And you yeah, can't look yeah. like you're being you're nice nice yourself. Like, oh, I'm I'm the most professional, the right. best. I myself a five, and yeah. I'm really yeah. cheap too. And it's like I mean, I'm that, the best. That could have been a vessel for like a vehicle to get me more job. But I can honestly say I don't think I'm any more just because of the survey like I, I i don't know i can't chart where the jobs come from but you're gonna get you're get job stuff based on word of mouth through other people or consistent stuff like the the work i like is the people that i have done work before in the past and i'm consistent with those are the people i like you know that's what i prefer i, yeah, I you get a rapport with people yeah absolutely i mean once you have a client you want to keep them for a long time because those are the guys that are going to see you through the slow periods yep um so, Rob, do you have any final thoughts on the story? Because you actually were the one that published it, and I, I really do appreciate yeah. you allow me to blog for you, which has been a big help for me. And for people who have not so. visited his site, Spiky Bits, I, and I've told Rob this myself, I feel like it's kind of the bell. And it has it posts as many articles and stuff as, as I feel like Bell does, and I feel like it's just, just comprehensive. And unlike Bell, Rob does all of his own unboxings. It's one of the benefits of being a, <laughs> a store owner. So if you want to see a new product or a new book review, <clears throat> just wait a second, and Rob will post it. <laughs> like it won't I, be long before he has. Yeah, I try. I try to get him on there pretty quick. Um, I, I guess you know we're not exactly a Bell. That's not our focus. Our focus is the hobby. Um, and yeah, we post some news and stuff on there just because I think. We're so big now that we're kind of the entry point for a lot of people, um, which is great and very flattering. And I just want to make sure that they know that there's other stuff out there and other, you know, there's other things going on too and check them out. Um, But, but yeah, you know, we try, we really try to focus on the hobby. That was my focus with the blog in the beginning was to, you know, keep me motivated, you know, obviously before I opened a store and all that, but, um, you know, just keep, just keep going and stuff. And unfortunately I haven't been able to post personally as much to there as, as I used to in the past, but I definitely have a ton of content to just get on there as soon as I can. <laughs> but yeah, that article was really good, and um, I think I think it was definitely a boon for the community uh, to to uh, to have on there. And hopefully, eventually, I when I got time, I can just get a hot link on there. Cool. Um, you know, just have it like a main featured article because I think it's probably you know one of the better ones in terms of hobby goes. Well, I am going to do an updated directory, and I am I'm going to have a, a way for other studios to contact me and basically submit their studio information. And I, I think eventually this would be a great resource for people to sort of have like a way to quickly and easily look at other services and mm-hmm. kind of go, this is my budget. Can I sort this list based on price? Can I sort this list based on quality? Can I sort this list based on what they do in terms of do they make terrain, do they make dioramas, do they make display boards? That way people can literally contact a service and have it be like a one-stop shop for their hobby um, as opposed to going around to three or four different services to have three or four different things done. Um, so I, th- I think it could be a good resource, and I, certainly so far people seem to have embraced it. I, I have had a few, I mean, it would be unfair to say I've had no negative comments about it. Like, there's been a few people that have contacted me and, and felt like they were misrepresented, or they felt like they weren't included, and I just didn't know where they were, and I, I couldn't find every service out there. And uh, in one particular case, the guy contacted me, and he was like, you completely got a couple things wrong. Like, he's like, we're not in Poland, we're in Sweden. And you know, there was a couple things like that, and I looked back at his emails, and I was like, "Wow, I really dropped the ball on that one." Um, so there was there was definitely room for for negative negativity and things I did wrong. But overall, I feel like people liked it, people benefited from it. I think it was it was helpful. But um, I do appreciate you guys taking your time out this morning to help us out um, and to give your two cents about it. You know, Thomas, you certainly being a commission painter, and Rob, you being 
you know, who you are in the community. I really appreciate your guys, your thoughts and your sentiments. Do you have any final thoughts or anything else? Not uh, too much. But, I, I think it's. Uh, I think miniature painting is going to be around for as long as uh, we can go to a store and buy a miniature. You know, so it's definitely it's definitely good to have to have these services out there for people. And uh, you know, it's it's good to have a way to uh, to kind of rank them up like like you did. So I think that's a good thing for everybody. Cool. Now, Thomas, you have any final thoughts? I think I think it was a great thing ranking up. And like I said, uh, I'll I'll help I help many miniature painters out when they ask questions because uh, there's enough work for everyone. Uh, yeah, I don't know how many great, how many great models you've played against. So <laughs> the gray phantoms. <laughs> oh, no. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I think as long as people have closets full of unpainted, unboxed, un- unopened minis, there's room for miniature painters. You know, and, and unfortunately, our society's gotten so busy that people just don't have the time they used to. Um, and so this is, I think it's a good time for miniature painters to get involved if they can just find their client base and find the people that they that can afford their services and keep themselves reasonably priced. I mean, like, like Thomas said, he enjoys doing it. So he doesn't price it like a job. He price it like, like a hobby. I feel like something mm-hmm. he enjoys doing and enjoys sharing. Um, and that's really, I think that's great. I think that's a good, that's a good thing for nature painters to learn from. All right, guys. Well, thank you very much. We will let you go and enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Um, and we appreciate your time on this. And uh, we will definitely invite you back to the podcast again for future podcasts. So thank you very much. And let me take this opportunity to say that Rob and Thomas also regularly speak on um, Forge the Narrative, which is the official podcast of Spiky Bits. And how many episodes are you guys up to now? 25? <laughs> so we're a little mind. Um, and their podcast is a very different flavor than ours, as it should be. Every podcast is. So I, I definitely encourage you to listen to that. I've, been, I've listened to that a couple times. I have to say my favorite one of your podcasts so far was probably when you guys were in the hotel room at the con and had clearly been drinking. Uh, that doesn't happen. <laughs> that was... <laughs> <laughs> that was by far like I think I listened to that a couple times actually. Was, I, I, I well, I don't even remember that one. So there you go. Yeah. Wow. I definitely think doing drunk more drunk podcasts should be should be a rule. <laughs> we don't do set you, out to do that, you know. Like Paul says, we're uh, we're we're a, a forty drink, we're a drinking yeah we're a drinking club with, with a forty k problem. You you you, you, you could t- you could tell Atari about how much I cuss. So right. you got me good today. So I, I was good today. <laughs> Uh, nice. All right, guys. Well, we're we're not necessarily a PG podcast, but we do appreciate you abstaining from your normal sailor-like language. So. <laughs> That's the common. All right, guys. Well, you guys have a good day. We appreciate it, and we will definitely have you back again. So, thank you so much. Hi, right, thank see you guys you. for your time. All right. Is that it. That's it, sir. We will cut right before yeah. you go. That it. Actually, I might leave. That it. <laughs> that it? Yeah, you should leave that in. Of course. I. Okay, and we're back. Uh, I just want to say a brief thank you to uh, Rob and uh, Thomas for joining us today on the show. We really appreciate their insights. Um, and I really appreciate, you know, anytime these guys are able to help out because they're definitely mentors in the community and they've been in it for as long as I have, if not longer. And they're both very active in the tournament scene. But unlike what I expect tournament players to be like, they're, they're, not, they're definitely not like that at all. I mean, they're just easy to talk to you guys and really down to earth. And, but to be fair, yeah. I've never played either of them. So maybe when I play them, <laughs> maybe like the, the, the wolf comes out. Um, so speaking of the wolf, we, uh, we're going to turn over to rules of engagement and uh, we're going to see what we can digest from that this week. So um, our rules of engagement slash pop quiz section is where one of us will ask the other one a question, whether it be a fluff related question or a, uh, a rule style question. And, um, so it's my turn to ask, and it's Justin's turn to be on the be on the spot. 
And uh, an article came up in Bella La Souls last week, which was a, a terrain review. And I really liked the way the guy wrote the article. I thought it was really, really, really simplified and well done. And so I was like, I thought this would be a good opportunity to review some of our cover basics. Because cover is a huge part of this edition. Uh, it probably, I would argue, greater than ever before. Um, and in the same regard, now there's more units that deny cover than ever before. Like there was always templates and there was always flamers, but now there's just units that just outright deny cover. Tau. Yeah, Tau. And uh, like Helldrakes and just lots of stuff. Like Tyranid, yeah. uh, what do you call those guys? The guys with the Impaler Cannon. Um, Hive Guard. So, and I think every codex should have one or two of those units, but for the, for the codexes that don't, for the guys that don't use those units, it's important for us to remember how cover works. So, all right. So, Justin, your question for this week is. Uh, you have a model standing behind ruins uh, who's also in area terrain. So he's standing on an area terrain base and in ruins as well. And we'll go so far to say as he's standing behind the ruins, at least 25% covered. What would his cover save be? And how much of his body needs to be covered in order to get that cover save? And what would his cover save be if he went to ground? So this is kind of a three-part question. So we'll start with the first part. He's in area terrain and standing behind ruins. What would his cover save be? Okay, he's on the area terrain, but not physically in the ruins. He's not physically in the ruins, but he is physically behind the ruins. He's standing behind the ruins, and we'll say that he's covered enough to for the ruins so cover save to count as cover. So the second part of the question, I, I guess we kind of need to just give away at this point, sort of. Um, the, the idea is that in order for cover to qualify, you have to be covered by 25% or more, which is not much, to be honest with you. Um, so right. it's very easy to get a cover save. In fact, when you think about 25%, you're thinking about, like, basically the lower half of your body, like maybe the left leg or something. Yeah. So it's not hard to do it. So we'll give that part away for free. But we'll, so we'll say his left leg or 25% of his body is covered by the ruin from the shooting position of the fire, but he's also in area terrain. I believe you only get a cover save of 5 plus in area terrain. You'd actually physically have to be in the ruins to actually benefit from the 4 plus, I believe, that ruins gives you. And see, this, this raises an interesting point, because, and that's where a lot of the confusion comes in, is that when you say in the ruins, do you mean like, like for example, if the ruin had levels, you'd have to be physically on one of the levels? That's how I would interpret it, is that you'd, have to fit your, you'd actually have to have the models physically in the ruins. Okay. So to play the devil's advocate, let's say that it was a building that did not have a lower-like platform. Where in that scenario would they have to be to for your in your mind for them to be in the ruins? Well, there's a difference between area terrain and ruins. That is absolutely you can, true. You can have ruins on area terrain, but in order, you know, and, and that's where the confusion is. I think at the beginning of the game, you'd basically sit down and tell your opponent, okay, even though I can't actually get these guys physically into this building for whatever reason, this is counts as a ruin, right? Or Conversely, you could say, okay, yes, this is a, a jumbled, open-type uh, building area, maybe a bombed-out shell, but it's area terrain. Sure. So it really comes down to disclosure and a, a set agreement on what something might be, and it, it, it's very important to communicate with your opponent. I, I would agree. So in this scenario, um, what do you think you would have conferred to your opponent at the start what, what do you think if, if you had this area terrain with ruins what do you think you would have asked him to count those ruins as if he were just or count, on, count that terrain piece as I guess 
in given given that we've just had this discussion, the way I would do it is if it was if if it was very clear that the whole area piece of area terrain was supposed to be a giant ruin, mm-hmm. you know, like bits and pieces of buildings on it. I would go ahead and say go ahead and count it as ruins. But if it were some building pieces on a piece of area terrain that also included a couple of craters, then I'm going to have to say this part with the buildings is our ruins and the rest of this is just area terrain. Sure. And I think that's the, I think that's the common interpretation from, for most people that they feel like if you're behind ruins, you count the ruins, but if you're in area terrain, you count the area terrain. And I think that the conception there is that if you're in area terrain, they think of area terrain as being a flat piece kind of, like, not necessarily yeah. a flat piece, but the reality is area terrain is defined by the size of the base. So, for example, if you have, like, a pie plate, let's say, five or six inches across, that's the area terrain. And they kind of think of it as what's on the area terrain is sort of superfluous. Now, the area terrain might have ruins on it, um, but that's where the right. confusion gets in. The way this guy defined it, uh, he defined the article this way, uh, and, um, and, and you're basically, the short answer is you're right. Um, there's area terrain and there's ruins and, you know, they're not necessarily the same. Like right. the bottom line is that if you're in area terrain, you gain a cover bonus for area terrain. You get a five plus cover bonus or say, say cover save because right. you're in the terrain. And the idea is not that you're necessarily covered, but the idea is that the terrain gives you some benefit. Like for example, let's say that you were standing on sort of like, um, a manhole cover that had smoke billowing out of it or something like that. Well, that's not going to physically be represented on the table, but it's an area terrain piece. Or you might argue that there's areas of, of dust where there's just dust being kicked up or that sort of thing. Right. Or, or, you know, forests are a good example of this. You might be standing in like a jungly forest or something like that where you might not physically be behind a tree, but you're actually in a forest. So the idea is that the terrain, the base, represents what is a dense forest. So right. So... You might physically not be behind a tree, but you are in area terrain. But see, that's the other thing, too, is that while to us who are playing, the models are stationary, in actuality, those units would be moving around, would be going prone, would be taking cover, you know, would be using the available terrain uh, to their best tactical Right advantage, and the and and I think the way the guy summarized the article, and I think this is absolutely one hundred percent true, is that it's always ta- you always take it from the position of the firer. So, for example, if I'm shooting at a model who is in area terrain and he has nothing better than area terrain to cover him, like he's not standing behind a ruined wall, then he's in area terrain. But if he happens to be in area terrain and there are ruins modeled onto the area terrain base, and to fire at him, he is physically behind a ruin or twenty five percent behind a ruin. I give him the benefit of the ruin because right. he's physically behind that. So I wouldn't say you take the best scenario. I say you take the most accurate scenario. Yes. Um, now, where it gets complicated is when you go to ground. Um, and that's where, it, that's where it even gets a little worse. So, Justin, the second part of your question is, let's say you go to ground in that same bit of area terrain with ruins on it. What do you think your cover save would then be? On the area terrain, you're going to get a 4+. plus. Okay. In the ruins, you're going to get a three plus. Um, now, I think it's one of those things that this is actually one of those areas where it's it's, it's miscommunicated because the idea is that when you're in area terrain, you actually get a plus two bonus. 
Um, and when you're outside of area terrain and you go to ground, you only get a plus one. So if you are in area terrain and you go to ground, you go from that five plus to a three to a three plus. So it's oh. actually it's actually incredible. Um, but if you're behind ruins and you go to ground, you only get a plus one. So you go to from a four plus to a three plus as well. So at the end of the day, it's still a three plus either way. Um, but you can't go to ground in area terrain behind ruins and get a two plus because people like to think that if you're in area terrain, you get a plus two bonus to your go to ground, and you're behind ruins, which is automatically a four plus. So then you're at a two plus, which is wrong. The best your area terrain save will ever be when you go to ground, or any cover save will ever be when you go to ground is a three plus. It will never get better than that, as the rules are written currently. Well, unless you have. Um... Sure, okay, Stealth. fair enough, fair enough. Unless you have some sort of special circumstance, yes. Right. Or if you had something like um, that uh, the tech priest guy, the grand tech priest who modifies cover saves, I think, by plus one. That oh. might be another circumstance where that happens. Bolster defenses. Yeah, but these are codex-specific examples. Yeah. The, stealth, the stealth rule is a universal special rule that, that applies right. to multiple units. So in just the base rules, that's kind of how right. it applies. Fundamentally, so, yes. Yeah, so, so there's a... And, and the thing is, is that we've been discussing this for just five minutes now, and we're not even playing. This is just a, a hypothetical. So you can see yeah. how this can quickly blossom out of control uh, in a regular game. Um, and I like to point out to people that, you know... Again, like any game, if you find yourself spending 10 minutes debating a rule, something's been lost. So yes. you should probably just flip roll the dice and just say evens or odds and just let that go for that game. Yeah. Um, because I've played with players who are very good players, and they get terrain rules confused all the time. And it's not because they're bad players. It's because the terrain rules are complicated. Yes, um, or they at least are. Not simple, or at least not simple to, to easily grasp. Um so, at least in my opinion, there's room for, there's room for confusion. The, the rules could have been better written, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, so, okay. So, we're going to call that a pass for Justin. He did, did well. He got it right. Uh, mostly. Okay, mostly right, which I think is, is a good start. Uh, okay. So, moving on to Precise Shot. This is a segment of the show where we like to talk about something very specific, whether it be a new model, a new release, a new website, uh, last time I think we did the Primark in a can, which I then posted to on Spiky Bits, and that was very popular. People really liked that. And I found out that apparently Russia is outside of GW's area of um, uh, what do you call it? I don't want to say legality, but they're allowed to publish stuff like that, like the Primark in a can, <laughs> because they're in Russia. <laughs> yeah. Which I think is fantastic. <laughs> but yeah. the problem is if I wanted to go do that, I'd have to live in Russia. So that's not going to happen. Um, but I, I do give them kudos for basically finding a way around the law. I think that's great. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I, I support their piracy, um, but not piracy in general. Just that piracy. Just that piracy. Just that piracy. Um, yeah. Okay. So for precise shot this week, we're going to talk about um, painting mediums because I feel like this, this like the area terrain rule, is sort of an area where confusion runs rampant and things get confused quite a bit. Um, now, painting mediums are basically anything that you add to your paint in order to change the consistency or to change what it does, basically. And I'm not going to get into all the technical terms because this doesn't need to be a technical podcast. Um, I'm not going to get into what goes into paint. But what I will say is that you know, basically you add these additives to your paints in order to get them to do something different. In the same way you add ingredients to a sauce to make it taste different, you might add a flow improver or a drying retarder uh, to your painting medium in order to change the quality of it. And when I first started painting, these were really foreign to me because GW didn't really have paint 
painters mediums at the time that I started painting. So when this these things started coming out, and companies like you know P3 and Privateer Press and uh, and other companies like Tamiya and Reaper were putting out their own paint mediums, I was just really baffled by them. And anything I was baffled by, I generally stayed away from. I didn't really know what they were. So it took a long time to sort of learn from other painters what these things do and how they can really improve your painting and, and you know that sort of thing. So I wanted to give a brief rundown of what I call the big three. Um, and these are the three core painting mediums that if you have no other painting mediums on your desk, these are probably the ones you should have. Um, and there's lots of different names for these. Some people call them one thing, some people call them another thing, and so we'll go over that very briefly. Um, okay, so first up is flow improver. Flow improver is basically a thinning medium. Now, you can just add water to your paint, but the problem with that is, is that it breaks down the cohesion of the paint. It physically kind of thins out in a bad way, the binding agent from the pigment. So you get kind of a soupy paint. Like it runs, it doesn't stick to your model. The goal with paint is that it's a thin enough consistency uh, that it'll cling to your model and it'll hide your brush strokes. But if it's too thick, it's too clumpy. And if it's too thin, it runs everywhere. So getting that perfect consistency is what you pay pay for when you buy paint. You're paying for them to already have that pre-done in the bottle. Uh, Unfortunately, it doesn't always work out that way. Some paints uh, dry a little bit. Some paints are thicker. If you've had a paint for six months on your workbench and it was slightly cracked, then it's probably dried out. Um, Fortunately, people thought about that sort of stuff, and they created Flow Improver, or thinner, as a lot of people will refer to it, as sort of a means to an end in this this way. And basically, its only goal is to allow you to cover your model better and smoother. If you use a really thick, opaque paint, like um, a a lot of paints, these really heavy paints um, that you'll buy sometimes. Like GW has a line of paints they call, I think they're weathering paints. And this is a really good example because these are paints that are very thick, they're very light on the water, and they do that in order to make them better for dry brushing. Um, Because basically when you dry brush, you're basically brushing the, the brush across some sort of porous medium, like a paper towel or a piece of paper, in order to really dry up the water uh, so that you're left with pure pigment. And it's the same stuff you buy as a weathering powder from companies like Forge World. So basically they just found a way to create more varieties of weathering powders that force you to use them in a dry brushing technique. Now it's not exactly like weathering powder because the dry brushing technique will actually allow the paint to cling to the model, whereas weathering doesn't. Weathering you actually have to create uh, a barrier for the weathering powder to stick to it like um, uh, like a varnish. Right. So the flow medium allows you, or the flow improver allows you to get the paint on the model more smoothly, more evenly. Um, it's important to point out that it doesn't necessarily slow down the dry time, but because it is thinner, you might think that it will. It will basically dry just as fast. And acrylic paints, their big problem is that they dry really fast. Um, now that's an advantage for me because it allows me to paint models quickly, and once that coat dries, I can move on to the next coat. Um, but the problem with that is, is that you have less time to do advanced techniques like blending and feathering, and you know um, you don't really yeah. have a time to thin out the paint on the model or to move it around if you're trying something special. Um, and if you're airbrushing, then if it dries too quickly in the gun, it'll clog. So their solution to that uh, is a medium called drying retarder, which unlike flow improver, it does increase the elasticity of the paint a little bit, but not much. Really what it's doing is it's slowing down the dry time. Um, and so the goal there is that it gives you more time to increase, you know, your, your paint so that it has a longer open time, as they say. So that way it allows you to work with the paint more. You can blend better with it. You can feather with it. You can drag it around the model more. It allows you more time to blend, to wet blend. 
So it just gives you a longer open time to work with. You can combine the two mediums, and most great artists actually do. Like they'll use like a drop or two of dry retarder and a drop or two of flow improver, and they'll call it a day. And that will allow them a very a paint that adheres better, thinner, and has a more of an open time. So they're modifying the paint, and they're doing it in a way that, that suits their paint style. Um, so that's always something good. The third one is called Matte Medium, and this one really sort of escaped me for a while because I really didn't understand what Matte Medium was. Because when you read the label for it, it tells you that it thins the paint, but it also tells you that it opens the dry time. So my first thought was, oh, it's the best of both. It combines both. But when you actually look at it physically on a palette, it doesn't look like either of those. Those are both clear mediums, and this is a very distinctly white medium, or, or a, 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 a guess so, like just a very basic medium. It's kind of a bland medium. And what matte medium is, is it's paint without pigment. So it's everything that goes into a paint. It's binder, it's solvent, it's the water, but there's no pigment or color. So basically it's like take your favorite color paint of paint, take out the color, and that's what matte medium is. So all they're bottling really is just blank paint. And then the idea is that you add your own pigment to that to create your own color. Um, so it's great if you want to make your own custom color um, instead of mixing something, like if you have your own custom inks or weathering powders, you can use matte medium to create your own color. You can use it as kind of a solve-all or a cure-all for flow improver and, and, and uh, dry retarder. So you can kind of use it as both, but in the same way that I can use like a ball-peen hammer to break an egg, it yeah. works, but it's not really effective. <laughs> like it, it just doesn't. You don't need to. It's overkill. Yeah. So I don't recommend using mixing medium as your go-to. I recommend having a small bottle of flow improver and a small bottle of, of drying retarder. Um, and they're very cheap. You can pick up flow improver um, and drying retarder for less than five bucks a bottle usually. And one bottle will last the average painter, I don't know, uh, a year probably of painting. Um, so it's not like it's very expensive. For big bulk painters like me, I usually buy that sort of stuff in bulk or I'll buy bigger bottles. Like you can buy thinners or flow improvers or whatever from companies that sell it in bigger bigger volumes, and that works for me better. But for most average painters, you really don't need much. Yeah, you got to have that bulk just in case you get that big Ultramarines chapter commission yeah, paint. Yeah, that would... Uh... <laughs> Now I'm nervous about it. I kind of, I kind of want it to happen, but I'm kind of, I'm kind of scared if it does happen. Um, okay, so that's it for our precise shot for the week. So that was our tribute to painters, and hopefully all you painters out there who have been confused about that for a while, that will help out a little bit. So we'll move on to Bitsbox. And Bitsbox is a segment of the show where we like to talk about, or where I like to talk about conversions and things I'm working on recently. Um, and and as, as, as I think I've said a couple times in the show today, uh, I just got invited to write for Bell All of Souls, which is a lot of fun for me because it allows me to blog on a much bigger, uh, to a much bigger population. So more people will be able to read my stuff, which I, I'm very pleased with. Um, and I've, I've been pretty good so far about not doing any conversion articles because generally speaking, conversion articles are one of those things that it's really hit or miss. People either love them or they hate them. Um, but it's it's the aspect of the hobby that I find the most fun. I like kit bashing. So I'm going to work on a couple new Tyranid models because the new Tyranid codex coming out in a few months has got me really excited. Uh, but I haven't heard any substantial rumors uh, for a while about uh, some of my favorite models, um, specifically the Biovore and the Zoanthrope. Um, and so a few a long time ago there was a rumor that the Zoanthrope and the Ravener were going to be combined in one kit because they basically look similar. 
And I thought that was great. But now those rumors have gone away, and I haven't heard anything about those for a while. And the Zoanthrope is just way expensive for a model. It's like 22 bucks or 25 bucks a pop. Yeah. It's kind of poorly designed, and then it's really top-heavy or head-heavy. And uh, as a metal model, it tends to tip over a lot. As a fine cast model, it's better. But I still feel like there's room for improvement on the model. I liked it yeah. when it first came out, but now I'm kind of thinking it could probably be redone. See what happens if you drop a metal one. Oh, God. <laughs> Those little fins like to break off quite a bit. Yeah. In fact, if you, I've, every time I've bought a used one on eBay, it's missing a fin or two. I've always had to replace them. Yeah. Um, and the Biovore, similarly, it was a cool model when it first came out, but then they've upgraded it over the years and changed it. And now I really don't like the look of it. And I feel like it's one of those models, it doesn't really perform great on the tabletop, but I feel like it should. Like, I, yeah. I think the Tyranids need a really good Devastator-style unit. Um, and I feel like the Biovore and the Zoanthrope should fill those roles, but they kind of don't. Um, so I'm, I'm, I decided I was going to kind of try my own. So I'm working on those right now. And uh, the Devastator, or not the Devastator, I'm calling it the Devastator. The Biovore I'm going to do is sort of a, a Tyranid-style Devastator. I'm going to take a Tyranid Warrior as a base model, and I'm going to give him just a massive bio cannon, uh, like some sort of spore mine hurler. And so he's going to be my first attempt at this, and I'm going to post him on Bell uh, probably in the next couple of weeks. Um, the only thing that's slowing me down right now is I don't know where my heat gun is because it's somewhere in the boxes of stuff that should go to my shop when the shop gets cleaned up. Um, so that'll be up in the next couple of days and or the next couple of weeks, and people can look at that and tell me if they think it's it's good or not, and if they see if they like it. And the Zoanthrope, I'm going to follow in the great traditions of people that have gone before me and use some Trigon bits uh, in combination with some Ravener bits and maybe a few Hive Tyrant bits. So basically, I'm going to just plunge my bits box. And uh, the goal is to build is to build them basically with what I've got in stock and not have to buy anything. So if I can build a brood of three of them for nothing or for just what I've got in my bits box, I feel like that would be a win. Uh, yes. Because anytime I can do that, I think it's great. And, and that's what I like to do. I like to ruffle through my bits box. I feel like, I feel like no bits should go unused at the end of the day. You know, If there's a bunch of bits just sitting in my box doing nothing, I feel like nobody wins. Right. So look for those coming up soon um, in addition to the other stuff we've talked about on the podcast. Um, and that, I think, brings us into uh, our Overwatch segment where we like to talk about um, uh, rumors and uh, what's forthcoming and what we've heard about down the pike. Um, and I, I suppose Tyranids is definitely what I'm most excited about. Um, have you heard any new rumors since last time we talked? They keep hinting at a big monster of some sort coming out, in addition to a Mesetic Spore kit. And those are the biggies that keep popping in to my head. And I've heard the same rumor, and I'm a little confused about the big bug rumor, because one of the rumors I heard was that the Mycetic Spore kit is going to double as like a Hive Note kit, which I think is great, like a terrain yeah. piece. I think that's really great. But then I thought that it would be a perfect use to have the Spore Mine kit also double as the big bug. Like, I loved the idea of something basically the size of a drop pod, but being a Tyranid. Yeah. Kind of like the, the plasma bug from the Starship Troopers game. Like, just something that massive. Yeah. Um, but I, I've never heard of a triple GW kit, like a kit that triples. Um, have you? Have you ever seen anything that actually goes three ways? Not that I know of. Yeah, I mean, I think from a design standpoint, that would be quite a challenge. Yes. So I guess the big bug would actually have to be a different kit um, entirely. 
Maybe we'll get a, a scythe hero duel, however you pronounce that. That would be cool. I, w- I think if they integrated the hero duel into the base game, that would actually be really great. But I'm a little afraid this might be the same kind of rumor that was with the Marines, where they said they yes. were get a big, big robot, a big walker. Yeah. So this could be just this could be false. <laughs> so take everything with a grain of salt. Yes. Um, I did find out the other harpy variant is what they're calling, and I will definitely mispronounce this. And um, Irenes, and it's uh, it was a D and D monster. It's like a devil in role playing games, and uh, I think it translates. Oh, I looked it up, but I forgot what it translates into. Um, I think it just translates into devil or she devil. Yeah. Um, which I thought was was kind of fun actually. Um. So I'm excited about that, and that's really all I've heard in terms of what's down the pike. Um, although, um, off of 40K and on a fantasy, and I know you're, you'll be excited about this, there are the beginnings of rumors of ninth edition. Yes. So do you feel like there's any credence to these rumors, or do you feel like it's just flash in the pan? It's been about five years, 2014. Yeah. Be- uh, excuse me, four years, because they, a f- eighth edition came out in tenth, uh, 2010. Right. I can't speak today. So it's about time, actually, yeah. for a new book. But you're actually a little ahead because there's also rumors of Dark Elf right. models. And I'm really excited about Dark Elves because uh, that's one of my main armies in fantasy, are nice. my evil elves. Very cool. Um, yes. I am not... Uh, a fantasy player, but not because I don't like fantasy, just because there's there seems to be no one in my circle that really is into it. Like I, I went out on a limb and bought a a, a war a vampire counts army, and unfortunately no one played. <laughs> so yeah. I I eventually ended up selling it, but um, I definitely am, am interested in restarting it. And at this local store, they're trying to get a Warhammer scene off the ground. So I'm doing a demo board for them. I'm taking the Isle of Blood set and I'm gonna have it painted up and do a board. And yeah. uh, so I'm hoping that that will help to ignite uh, yeah. a spark of interest in our store. Because I know you and I played a couple of games of fantasy. We did, and those were the only games I've ever played. Yeah. <laughs> Which was sad because it's I had a lot of fun doing it, and I'd like to do yeah. more of it. But it's one of those things that you really have the, – the community around you kind of has to exist before you buy an army. Right. Because what I did was I worked backwards. I bought an army – and hoped to create a community. Yes. It, it didn't work at all. <laughs> um, okay, so let's do a brief in the trenches. And this is a very irregular segment for us. We don't do this all the time, although we have done the last two podcasts. Uh, and this is a segment where we talk about game stores and their owners and uh, uh, how we perceive them. And I don't want to dwell on this too long, but... Uh, I think as I've mentioned a couple times before in this in this particular show that there's a new store that opened up in our area called Event Horizon Games and the owner who I've met with on a couple occasions is a real cool guy. But the way I met him was that I wanted to do an article for Bella Lost Souls where it was going to be a three-part article or it is going to be a three-part article where I will talk to a game store owner before their store opens and talk about their expectations, their frustrations, their hesitations, and their anticipation. And then I will talk to them again after like six months to see how things are going. But in addition to that, I would talk to a game store owner who'd had their store open for a few years and see how they're handling it and how change has occurred and how they've adapted. And then sadly, I I was going to speak with a game store owner that their store is closed and see how they're handling the change, why they closed, um, and that sort of thing. And we recently had a store closed down in Raleigh, so it was kind of a perfect opportunity for that. Although it was unfortunate, it was just a good a good 
chance for that to occur. And I didn't want to talk to the guy to really pick his bones. I really wanted to talk to him just to understand what he's going to do now, how he's going to do, uh, how, what, he's, what he's excited about, if there's anything he learned, and how the community can kind of benefit from that. Um, so I haven't done that interview yet, although I have set up the interview, so that's going to be in the next couple of weeks. But I was able to do the interview with the local owner before his store opened, and I showed up about a week before, or two days before the store opened, and I sat down with him and his staff for about an hour or so and interviewed them all. And it was really, uh, it was really cool. It was, it was kind of like watching kids before Christmas. You know, they're all excited. They're decorating the hall, you know, and like they're getting out their product and they're putting it on the shelves. And you can tell they're all exhausted, but they're also sort of gleeful and they're they're very eager to have their first clients in. Um, so I won't get into the whole interview, but I will put a link to the Bella Lost Souls article. Um, and, and I thought this was a really cool experience. It was really positive to sort of approach an owner before a store opened and just to see how excited he was about it. Um, you know, and just to sort of form a relationship with him from the very get-go. And I think that was really great for me from a business point of view, just to, just to forge that bond. Um, but right. in addition to that, just to sort of talk to him, not as a game store owner, not with a counter between us, but just as a person. And it's been right. really positive so far. Did you have any game store owners that when you were playing with that you were really close with, or were they kind of more like always that distant guy on the other side of the counter? Actually, I would go in to my old FLGS when I was still in college, and there was one or two guys I could actually sit there and talk to um, as somewhat as people. There was still that, you know, a little bit of that barrier there, but it wasn't as pronounced. Uh, I could stand up there and, you know, so long as he didn't have too many customers coming through, he would listen to me and my nonsense, you know, for as long as I had any nonsense to talk about. Nice. You know, um, by that time, though, I'd been going to that store for, you know, about a year and a half or so. So I was kind of, you know, a regular face anyway. Sure. That makes sense. Uh, I was the crazy guy that would walk uh, you know, about 25, 30 minutes in the horrible Texas heat, you know, 100, 100 degree weather, carrying a big battle foam backpack, you know, full of of miniatures. So I kind of gave myself a bit of a reputation for the things we are willing to do in the name of our hobby. Nice. <laughs> you know, that, that actually reminds me that in this recent store, one of the things that he did that was really cool was he bought some lockers. Yeah. So that you could bring in your stuff, and for a very small fee, you can actually keep your stuff at the store, like books and your cases and your minis. Oh, God, that would have been so helpful. Really helpful. You know, it was a great idea. Um, and I, I realized very early they were going to sell out those lockers really quick. So I, I booked mine yeah. for like six months, just so yeah. I wouldn't have to worry about renewing it. But yeah. um, I definitely think more game store owners should do that if they can. Yeah. Um, one of the things I liked about this store was that it was a big store, but that carries with it big risk. Because um, it's a lot of space to heat and cool, and yes. uh, you know the the guy whose store just closed, conversely, was a small store, and yeah. it was one of those things where, you know, when a store closes, you have to go. Was it is it is the community responsible for part of that, or is it the owner's sole responsibility? Like, where does that line get drawn? Because, you know, as we all know, for a store to work in a retail environment, there have to be there have to be customers. Like, you have to be buying right. stuff. Well, um, I talked to. It's also kind of funny because I, I the new FLGS I'm looking into, Power 9 Gaming, up here in Fort Wayne, Indiana, I talked to one of the people that owns this, this really nice lady named Jeannie, and 
one of the problems that she said a lot of these guys own game stores has is that they would rather be out with their customers playing games with their customers rather than actually running their store. Yeah, I understand that. I think that she might have have a point. I mean, because she, you know, loves the the gaming side of it, but she's a a businesswoman first, right? Sure. You know, you know, she knows Magic the Gathering, you know, and she wants to get a Warhammer slash forty k community out at Power Nine, and I'd actually love to help start that. But first and foremost, she's got to make a living. Yeah. And. Therefore, you know, she has to mind the store and can't be out there playing MTG or whatever with the customers. And I think that that might be, and not all, it not all in the same, you know, in not all the instances where you have store closures, but in many instances, this might be the case where the store owner is wanting to, you know, hang out with his customers. Yeah, so, absolutely. Just my two cents, you know. Uh, and I think in a, in a lot of cases, people have this idea that being a store owner is going to mean that you get to play just all the time and that it will be like, you know, just a party every day in your store where you're just you show up and you play. And and I think that's true in some scenarios. But I think, like you said, you, you, it's a business first and a store second or a business first and like a play club second, you know. Right. Um, and I think that is a, a difficult distinction. One of the things that I, I learned talking to. Um, and, and from a, they're, they're very different points of view because the guy I just talked to, he's an organizer at his store who just opened his store and he's involved with everything. He has a foot in everything. So he's like, every time there's a game, he's trying to set up all these meetups and all these organized games and it's awesome. But I also recognize that that's a lot of work and yeah. you know, someone's got to manage the books, but in his case, he has a wife that handles the books. So that's helpful. Yeah. Um, but in the other case the other store that actually closed, it was one of those situations where he actually never gamed. In fact, I never saw him game. So I feel like for him, the hobby wasn't there. Like he just, he didn't have the hobby anymore. Right. Um, so because of that, I feel like in many ways, and he told me this when I picked up that shelf from the, this guy, he was like, I'm actually kind of excited <laughs> because yeah. now he gets to play for the first right. time in a long time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's interesting, but it, it's certainly worth talking about. And I feel like, it's one of those things we don't really think about much, but who the game store owners are. And it was an area yeah. of the hobby I wanted to explore. Right. And I felt like there was there was definitely room to explore it, and there was room to so just see what people thought about it. So Yes. Cool. Okay. Well, I think that about wraps it up. This has been our, our longest show ever so far. And uh, I think it's important to point out that we, we aim to have our show short. Um, we don't want a, a four-hour podcast if we can avoid it. Not only because I don't want to talk that long, but because I'm, I'm sure that people have better things to be doing. Um, but we do try to make it more of a, a rapid-fire entertaining segment. However, when the, when the subject matter is something that's dear and near to us, then we feel like we should expand on it and talk about it. And, and in regards to what we talked about with GoBoy and, and, uh, and, and Rob earlier, I feel like we could have talked about that topic for hours. Like we, I feel yes. like we could have gone on all day. And I feel like an hour, the hour we spent on it was, was useful. But yeah. we could have we could have kept going. So I felt like we had to cut it off at some point. But you know, and you know, I, I have to call back Thomas this afternoon. I'm sure we'll continue to talk about it. Yeah. Um, 
That would have been more entertaining if we'd all been drinking. Yeah, I definitely think a drunk podcast is, is the way to go. <laughs> um, there's this one guy out there who has a website called Whiskey and 40K, and I kind of hate it because that name is so good. Like, it's such a good name for a podcast. I'm so jealous of that. <laughs> um, but I do think we should revisit the uh, the miniature painting our yes. discussion at some point in the future because there's some things that 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 article caused me to think about things differently. It caused yeah. me to revitalize what I wanted to do with my business, and it really caused me to sort of sit there and go, "Is this the direction I want my business to go, or do I want to change it?" And yeah. I've, I've had to ask some really instrumental questions, and yes. so I think we should talk about that in the future, but not tonight. <laughs> no. So, okay. Do you have anything else to add, Justin, before we sign off? At the moment, no, I do not. Okay. Well, um, if you guys are listening, we appreciate your listening. Be sure to like us on Facebook, follow the link to our Facebook page, or hopefully you've already found it because you're listening to us. And I would also encourage you to listen to Forge the Narrative, which is a very different podcast than what we do here, um, but certainly worth a listen. Um, I think there's room for all of the different podcasts out there, and they all have their own unique group of hosts and they have their unique things they like to talk about and we are not a competitive gaming podcast but i feel like we're more of a a flavorful fluffy podcast and that's what we like um but there's lots of different stuff out there you don't have to have it all in one place so please listen to forge narrative and enjoy that uh and if you have some orcs you need painted uh please well i'd like i'd like to paint them but if you don't (laughs) want me to paint them then then thomas would love to paint them too and i'll put a link to his site And uh, I guess that's about it. So until next time, this has been War Council, and my name is Caleb Dillon. My name is Justin Jones. And until next time, put your minis minis where where your mouth mouth is. is. Thomas does drawing, right? He draws stuff for people. Yeah, what I've been doing with him recently is um, I wanted to develop some concept art for the site because I realized that if I wanted to develop like an army, uh, a concept army will cost me hundreds if not thousands of dollars to build yes but it only costs about 15 bucks to get thomas to draw a couple pictures <laughs> see because i'm trying to get i'd like to get a picture of my death watch character that's awesome he will definitely do it if you just email him and just say hey this is justin from war council i'm sure he'd love yeah. to do it. his uh, his style of art is really it's it's almost like comic book art yeah uh, and he paints the same way and i really like his style style of drawing just um, yeah and it's one of those things that he's done. At this point, he's doing all the concept art. He did. He redid the logo. He did the War Council logo. And so he's yeah. really great. And he's really easy to work with. And he's very reasonably priced. And he's really fast. Yeah. Like he paints stuff or he'll draw stuff. And it'll be done in like a week or two. It's great. Yeah. I mean, he seems like a super nice guy. And that, that reminds me too is that, you know, maybe down the road, I might have you do my Do Brother RG.